Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. episode of the movie breakdown this is our 400th episode so first things first if you've been with us for all 400 episodes thank you that is amazing we are so excited that we have now done 400 episodes and so we want to do something special this week and for sort of these big milestones we usually like doing something that's a little bit personal showing ourselves a little bit and so we thought what we would do is the breakdown of the movies that define us and so what that means is we are both going to be picking 10 movies that we feel that if you watch them it gives you a window into our soul it gives you a bit of an idea of the type of person that we are so these are very personal movies to us and i really think it's going to be a really fun episode i'm christopher spicer and i'm scott martin and this uh, we've talked before about you know, this list show or that list show and how hard it was to uh, finalize it and this is easily the most difficult list I've had to make to the point where I mean I, I couldn't even settle even the idea of no particular order didn't seem right to me I needed some other way to do this because there's no talent saying one movie over another so I, I'm going to go through chronological order uh, because that like I said, even just telling myself, oh, I'll just do it in no particular order. No, no. That would still make me wonder if I'm favoring one movie over another by putting it later. I don't know. It's crazy. There's a lot going on here as far as nostalgia, as far as just eye-opening moments, you know, as, as we're, uh, you know, through our lives watching films. And the movies we're going to talk about today, uh, I, I mean, they... And they're not going to be... I mean, there could be some movies that are our favorites of all time. That oh, is, for sure. Yeah, and that's that's possibly going to happen. Uh, but more importantly, these are the films that... Uh, something Maybe something about them has stuck with us. There's Or there's something about them that we attach to because they reflect our personality. Uh, we could mention a movie because it sums up what we feel of an entire genre and that that, that movie may just encapsulate everything we loved about 
about a certain genre. So there's a lot of uh, different ways a movie could fit on this list or come into play, which, I mean, I don't know for you, but but because there, we're that... Since this is that wide of a scope into what we mean by this list, for me, this was so difficult. Yeah, it, it, it was really, really uh, difficult. And while I was doing this list, I realized what I probably should have done is maybe picked a time period of movies that defined us. Like, movies from the 2000s that defined us, or movies from the 80s that defined us. But by, by the point I realized I should have done that, I felt like we are already a few days into the week, and that wasn't fair to you if you've already done some of your lists, so I didn't do that. But I realized, after the fact, it probably would have been way smarter to kind of narrow this a bit more. And so I, that was, that was uh, my mistake. But like you said, I think it's inevitable that some of our favorite movies are going to be on here. That's for sure. But we're not telling people that this is our all-time favorite movies. For me, at least, I saw them as movies that are either very deep, deeply personal, movies that I felt like influenced me in my childhood or influenced me as a person at some point, and movies where if you look at this, it's showing an aspect of myself. Which, again, those are very vague terms, but that's sort of how I saw that. Is I think the best way is very deeply personal movies. Absolutely, and I think that's what the discussion's going to do best in bringing out. I mean, if you're listening to this and you're just going to look at the list that's posted, um, I, I I think that uh, you know when we discuss it during the recording here, it's going to really make th- have things make sense as to why you know a specific movie may be on the list. Uh, so I, I'm really, really, really pumped for that discussion. Yeah, I, I am too. I think this is going to be, uh, like I said, one of our more personal episodes, yet it's still about the movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so we're ready to jump in here. This is exciting. Uh, my first movie, and going by chronological order, this was one that came out in 1939. And as much as I go on about myself being the person who hates musicals, the person who doesn't understand why you know anyone would solve their daily problems through song and or song and dance, here we are, my very first film on this list is The Wizard of Oz. And as far as you know me being somebody who likes who is fascinated with the hero's journey, be it here, Star Wars, Conan the Barbarian. Um, Those were all big films, obviously, when I was a young lad. Uh, I picked this one because this is, we had a family tradition that every year uh, we, I think my dad got the Laserdisc player from the library and got Wizard of Oz, and we watched this movie once a year. And that was always something that was just you know, you, you, we, my sister and I, we really looked forward to it. Uh, when the songs, the, the musical sequences were playing, we'd stop, you know, listen to them, stop, try to get all the words down, rewind and hear that line. And, and, uh, we were just absolutely fascinated with this film. And, and I think there's a number of reasons why, uh, it resonates with me so well is that the story elevates it above genre and what yes while i'm not necessarily the biggest fan of musicals just as a concept this is you know just such a classic tale about who a person is and what a person views as treasure or desire and i think it's very philosophical i think it's very touching as far as a film 
the visual aspects, the imagination here, setting up the world, uh, setting, you know, doing, designing the sets, the costumes, all of that stuff is, is just brilliant. And on top of that, you have some insanely catchy songs. Uh, some of the most catchy songs that I've ever heard in a musical ever. And all this combines with just this, this delightful treat that, that, uh, you know, blew me away. And every time we, we watched it, it felt like I was in Oz, and it was one of those experiences that always just took me out of wherever I was and, and planted me in this just this beautiful world. And yeah, like I said, this was a yearly tradition, and it, each year I was so excited about it. I did not do my list in any particular order whatsoever. I basically just created a list of when something came to me and shuffled around, and I mean, my list was one where there were movies that were on it and then they disappeared. My top 10 list looked about eight different things throughout the week. It changed a lot, but, but I didn't necessarily do any particular order. So it's easy for me then to do one of the movies that's on my list now too. We got our first Samesies right off the bat and that's Wizard of Oz. And this is one that came on my list pretty early, but I was having a challenge because I wanted this list, these 10 movies, to reflect different aspects of me as a person and reflect different aspects of me as a moviegoer. And one of the things about me that people know watching this show is I love older movies. So I wanted to make sure I got an older movie on here. I wanted a classic. And people also know I do like musicals. So I felt like I needed to have a musical on this list. And those are two big things I was looking at. And then I started thinking like you, when I was a kid, every single year, my mom would pop up a big thing of popcorn and as a family, we would get together and watch Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz was probably one of the first older movies I ever saw. And I have a deep personal relationship with this movie. Like I said, every single year I had seen it just like Scott. That must be a family tradition a lot of people had. And so I would return to this. This was a movie movie that was much excitement I could finally show it to my son when he was very young and and so with the Oz have seen it showed it to my daughter so this is a very deeply personal movie this is probably a movie that would be on my top 10 favorite movies of all time because I have such a personal connection to it and so in the end I decided this is a movie that is going to embody many aspects of me and so it's a perfect movie to watch because one like i said it's so personal it's a movie i keep on wanting to share with like my kids and stuff it's a musical and a, a musical i have a special spot for that i have that energy Mu musicals uplift me they make me feel good uh i love classic films it's a classic older film and so it embodies all that aspect aspects and on top of that there's a fantasy element there is the hero's journey there's the magical worlds and this idea that cinema could transport you to these magical worlds that are different than our own and taking us to somewhere different and us to in some ways go to that magical world but also realize appreciate what we do have and that's something older that i'm kind of learning is that idea of wanting to sort of delve into fantasy wanting to delve into my imagination but also slowly learning to appreciate the family and the friends that i do have and there is that message here too appreciate what you have so all those elements it became a mandatory movie for a list like this yeah um like you, it definitely was a movie that, you know, I, I wanted to have uh, examples from, from I mean, older films. I, I'm, 
I, I a movie that just got bumped off the list barely was Abbott and Costello in in Who Done It. I mean, the older films when I was young was a, was a big part of life, uh, and unfortunately things had to get bumped. But Wizard of Oz was one of those movies. I think that was maybe the very first movie that I even thought of for this list because of how how important it was for for my life and and viewing of films and being exposed to different types of things. You know, very thankfully being exposed to different types of things at a very young age. And I, I you know, for me, I think it's just the idea of the imagination behind it and the, the, the beautiful uh, design of this, this fantastical world uh, that just, you know, I don't know. That's just Scott all the way. Yeah, no, it, it, it is definitely um, for me too. And, just like you, while doing this, I learned how small a list of ten is, and how, how many things, how I realized how many movies there are that are deeply personal to me, and how many movies that I think embody me. It's way more than ten, but I, but like you, I think Wizard of Oz is one of the best. Like, if you really want to understand me in the type of movies that connect with me, and the type of person that I am, Wizard of Oz is very much that movie. It kind of checks all the boxes. It is a fantasy world. It is about the big giant sets. It is about sort of being colorful and magical. But there is also this thing about Dorothy who felt alone and was having hard times at home. And this journey is about her finding that strength. This journey is about her sort of uh, finding herself and it's kind of a coming of age story and then like I said it's also appreciating her home life a bit more and appreciating those people and then those things that were hard it's coming to terms to me there is a mental health aspect to this picture and so that's another reason why it connects to someone like me as I've been very open about the fact that I've uh, struggled with those kind of things and I think that that I hadn't even looked at it from that perspective, but I think that it shows, you know, just how thoughtful that the the script was and the story was to begin with. That that this is something that is, you know, on the surface very entertaining and engaging, and it sucks you in. But there is a lot in there that 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 does, you know, uh, you know, like I said earlier, is very philosophical and 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 thoughtful and yeah it's a film that if i had kids i'd try to be doing the the yearly viewing as well my cats aren't into musicals regardless of how pretty they are so i just i can't get away with it yeah and that's one i i think it just encourages the imagination and encourages that sense of play and so yeah it's 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 a wonderful movie good choice on you good choice on me so it's back to you now Perfect, and I don't think you'll have this one, but you won't be surprised when I say it. My next pick is from 1966, and this is Batman the Movie. And this is a film that, um, if, if you were wondering, what is Scott's sense of humor? Um, this is Scott's sense of humor rolled up into an hour and 45 minutes and led by Adam West and Burt Ward. I, uh, it is, as Adam West put it, it is the theater of the absurd. And it fooled me so much as a kid because I thought that this was just a really cheesy show that missed the mark. And it wasn't until I grew older 
and realized and understood the fact that everything cheesy and corny and campy about this was the purpose of the show. And a lot of times, if people try to portray that kind of, uh, or have that kind of movie that is purposefully campy, it can be very hard to watch because there's this fine line. You need it to be to the point where, unless you're sure, you don't know whether they're taking themselves seriously or not. That's the kind of kind of movie it needs to be sort of like uh like honestly big trouble little china which was also uh both of them i believe were these were uh written by lorenzo semple jr am i right about that did he write big trouble little china as well no he no he did flash gordon he did oh flash gordon that makes sense yeah so that's another movie where if you did that's even more so that fits even better because that's more of the comic Thing. Yes, yeah. So that's that's the fine line these movies need to walk is that idea that you're not just sitting down there and thinking, oh, they're having a go at everything, but you may not know like are they is this being taken seriously and they're just failing. And I think with movies like uh Batman the movie and with uh Flash Gordon, it's just that perfect execution of of, of that. And you know, watching this this film always brings that smile to me because it's got that loopy sense of humor that that I always attach to as a child and growing up. And you know, Adam West and his delivery—it's it. They've got some very serious actors in this in this show as well, or in this movie as well. And nobody nobody is. <laughs> is holding back everyone's going all in caesar romero is all in uh you know burgess meredith is all frank gorshin they're they're just throwing themselves at this and it ends up being a movie that is just a total delight and for me it hits that sweet spot every single time and uh, we're talking about how while we do this list, there's going to be movies while we're doing this discussion that will jar me. I'm like, oh, how did I miss that one? That mm-hmm. should have been my list. And I just want to say right now, your reference to Big little, big Trouble in Little China, it also clicked. I'm like, yeah, that's a movie I wanted on here. So I'm glad you mentioned it because I could just say if we talk about a movie that embodies <laughs> me, which mm-hmm. is sense of adventure, but just being absolutely crazy and insane – that's Big Trouble in Little China. Not to derail Batman, which also is very goofy. And even though it is not on my list, and you're correct, and I think you have a better, more of a personal connection to this movie than I do, I did come home from school for weeks, for quite a while, and catch the Batman episode. So I was into the Adam West show at a time. Mm-hmm. And, well, I mean, I would be surprised if you weren't, because that speaks... Just to me, it seems like that show speaks your language as well. No, it does. And I do enjoy the Batman movie uh, quite a bit. I mean, they jammed as many villains in that thing uh, as possible. One of the things I find intriguing about the Batman movie, and maybe I'm remembering wrong, you can correct me, but the movie came before the series. Yes. But it feels like it's the accumulation of the series. When you watch it, it looks like like when I saw the movie, I thought, "Oh, this is how they wrapped up the series," and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, to kick off the series, 
And uh, yeah, I think. I mean, I Which think it makes me kind of think that the show never quite measured up to the movie. I don't think it did. I think, like, I mean, I like the show a lot. Um, me too. But yeah, when you see the show compared to the movie, the movie is just every single scene, every single moment is on point. And um, yeah, just on the on the topic of other films like Big Trouble, Little China, and Flash Gordon, um, for me, like. Honestly, there was a bit of a toss-up here. I always lean more Batman, but between those three films, one, I, it's like my list had to have one of them to represent that type of movie uh, because I think that all three of those just just hit it so well. Yeah, I have a very special spot to Big Trouble in Little China, and I definitely have a very special spot uh, to Flash Gordon. I saw that in a drive-in while I was a little kid, so those are things I connect to. That actually, to be honest, is probably one area that my list I missed it. Because, because again, you only have 10. I, I kind of missed that spot. And so I'm glad that we could talk about the Batman thing and we could talk about those other three movies because there is a very special connection that I have to sort of that pulpy and that sort of that idea of kind of knowing that you're doing something that's kind of campy and silly and playing that field, but at the same time, the characters play it straight. I have a huge soft spot for that. Oh, me too. Me too. So that's the thing about this this episode is that there's going to be things that I didn't even think about that you're going to mention, and then that's just going to make me happy because we got to talk about it. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, my my next movie, uh, this was the first on my list because I think every single person who... It's not first on my list now because we did Wizard of Oz, but that's what I initially had on here. Uh, the, and the reason why I'm mentioning this movie is because I think anyone who knows me would assume this movie had to be on this list. Everyone would automatically say this is most definitely on your list if i think when people think of me as a movie goer as someone who likes movies this is the movie that they think first so obviously star wars was going to be on my list and it was my first pick was there a you said was kind of your first star wars was the first thing i put down now let's figure out everything else like <laughs> obviously this has to be on here because this movie i wrote actually about a week ago about why i felt star wars was the greatest movie of all time, and it was a very personal piece. It was telling me about how Star Wars kind of defined my movie going, kind of defined my writing career, kind of defined every other interest I had in my life. And so to me, Star Wars is this thing that really got me into the world of movies. It's the thing that really got me into the world of storytelling. And I, I'm not going to re-read the whole piece that I wrote, but just to sort of explain it for people that didn't read it, or just a little bit of my connection with Star Wars, is Star Wars wasn't the first movie I saw, but it was the first movie that completely immersed and wowed me. And once I saw that movie, it was the first one where I wanted to figure out, how did they make this? And so this is what got me into documentaries. This is what got me into the making of stuff. I bought all these books about the making of Star Wars, and then... 
basically gave me a lifetime interest in learning about how are movies made. And so in a lot of ways, it led to me being interested in film criticism. It led me being interested in the backstage aspect of movies. I became a movie buff because of my connection to Star Wars. Because then also, once I saw Star Wars, I realized, oh, George Lucas was influenced by these movies. He was influenced by Akira Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress. He was, who's Akira Kurosawa? And so I saw, oh, Seven Samurai, this type of stuff. And, oh, he was interested. He was influenced by Metropolis. He was interested in this. And so it got me tracking down all these older movies. And then I realized that he was interested in literature. So it got me into mythology and it got me into Greek myths. And then which also got me into history. And so that was another aspect. And because I love Star Wars so much, I used to walk around with this little notebook and writing about my own versions of Star Wars. I'd write about scenes that were missing from Star Wars, these added things. What did R2-D2 and C-3PO do before this happened? And so it spawned my love for storytelling and writing because I had this notebook around that I constantly wrote about Star Wars stuff. And then I started writing about my own versions of Star Wars. And I, I created this series called The Hero Legacy. And it was essentially very much kind of contrived versions of Star Wars but it was my first attempt at writing original stories and writing original characters. And, and so it really got me into that. And so that aspect of Star Wars is important because it really influenced who I was as a kid. And it really created kind of who I am today, this movie lover, but also this person who wants to be a novelist, this person who's a writer, and all those aspects came from Star Wars. And so that's one area where you got to watch Star Wars because you see, that's kind of defined the person Chris is. That's what Star Wars did. And then another thing is I always was a kid who sort of... I was bullied a little bit, and I always felt kind of awkward in my skin, and Star Wars allowed me to escape to this other world. I saw this boy, Luke Skywalker, who... Uh, couldn't get to go to Tashi and get his power converters. He, he wasn't able to get what he wanted, but then he got something more. He realized he was a Jedi and he went on this big sweeping adventure. And so it gave me a hope that one day I could be a Jedi. Maybe I could go to other worlds. Maybe I could get more. Maybe I could be something great. And for me, I sort of learned like, oh, I do have the force, but it's my writing. It's my ability to tell stories. It's my creativity. And so Star Wars in that way was really inspiring because it gave me, you know, a hope, a, a new hope. A new hope. A new hope. You can spend time with your friends later. That's it, right. Yes. Um, yeah, this, this movie is pretty massive for so many people. And especially our age, the kids that saw it, you know, when it first came out, although didn't see it when it first came out, but did get, we, you know, did get to see it in theaters as kids and what, what an impact it had. And it, it, I, I'm really impressed with what it did for you. Like the, the, the path that it set you on, um, that you, you described, I think that's just absolutely amazing. And that's the, which is why it always will be. It cannot ever be replaced as my favorite movie. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think, you know, being able to talk about the movies from this perspective is, is always great because it's, it's a lot of that personal aspect to it, you know, not necessarily breaking down, uh, story components or, you know, the, the things that we normally try to critique, but just the fact that, the movie speaks to us. The fact that it, it has that presence, uh, you know, I, I was just such a Star Wars nut as a kid, and then like it, it still hasn't changed. 
I was, I was about to say I was not for video the video games and everything, but that sort of died down on account of them making a lot of crappy video games over the last uh, 15 years or so, uh, maybe less. I don't know, but I mean, ever happened once EA took over. <laughs> oh, that was a guarantee fail. Yeah, um, yeah, because I'm trying to think of the. When it really started happening, there was a game called The Force Unleashed, where the demo was just phenomenal. And um, I think I got more geeked about the video games than I did the movies, uh, because the video games, if done well, put me in the movies and put me in those situations. So I was, uh, yeah, a bigger geek for the games than the films. And when The Force Unleashed came out, uh, I remember I didn't go to, I was going in college at the time, and I did not go to school that day. Because uh, I, I was going to buy the game, and I bought it, and I played it, eh. and then I went back to school the next day, because there was no point staying around and playing it again. Yeah, that that's, uh, that's a real bummer. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but yeah, Star Wars is a special thing, too, because it is something that I was able to share with my son, who then has also loved it, and we've gone through the whole series together, and so we were able to kind of create that uh, connection, and I think that's what happens with sort of these uh, certain movies that speak to you, is it something that you kind of want to share with people, and you want to kind of have that special uh, connection to it, and I get, like, I'm picking Star Wars as this movie where people are like, oh man, like, you're picking the most, like, popular and well-known movie, and I get that, but I think I've also shared here that it's a very personal thing for me, and that's why it had to be on here, because of the ways that it influenced me, and I totally, to me, Star Wars is the definition of, like, sort of why you figure out, like, what actually makes a greatest movie of all time, because I think art is such a personal thing, because... Is it the best cinematography ever? Never. No. Is it the best acting ever? No. Is it the best dialogue ever? Not even close. Is it, like, the best scripting ever? No. It's actually, he really, George Lucas took it from all these other things. Like, it's not really the most original story ever. But he, he created this thing and used pop culture from different areas to craft this very unique, fully breathing world and that's where my connection comes from because what makes star wars special is the fact that it feels like this lived in world it feels like there's these other galaxies and there's these other creatures and and he did such a great job of like when you go in the ca cantina and there's all these different characters in there and they're just there to make it feel alive they don't have any real story purpose other than feeling alive and i love the fact that the first star wars makes all these different references to these other things like the Clone Wars and even to like Luke's father and, and Tashi to get power converts like all these things that have nothing to do with the story and at the time who knows if he even had any plan to do any payoff but it added this flavoring it added this kind of full world it, it got my imagination going because as a kid I was wondering what were the Clone Wars what were these different things where are the places that Luke goes to as a kid before he became like a hero and that's I think the magic of Star Wars is the fact that George Lucas had such a massive imagination that he couldn't stuff it all into this movie. So it's 
full of references. I mean, the first one just references Jabba the Hutt, if you're not talking about the special edition. Like, even that, like, uh, Han with his, uh, with the bounty on his head, that's another thing. Like, oh, what's going on there? And like I said, as a kid, I wrote all these different things. I put up with my own different versions of it. And I think that's what makes Star Wars great is that kind of fiction where there's this whole living world and all these other things that get your imagination going because the movie just kind of hints at it. And there's very few other movies that I think master that so perfectly. And basically what you did just describes why the video games for me were such a fascination because of the world building. And this, it may sound to people like, like just a small thing, you know, referencing this or referencing that and not going into explain what it is, because that's how we talk about. We talk if someone mentioned, oh, the Great War in, in everyday conversation, you know, the one that started with, with the, the, the assassination of it, it. No, no, it's it. We just we reference things. And so many movies don't do that. They don't just have that. So that is... Well, that's cool. You're right. You nailed it. Because other movies would say the Clone Wars. You know the Clone Wars that started when Grand Tatiak got killed by the Yukins from the planet Sufra, which you don't talk that way. If you and I are talking about World War II, we would just be like, you know, like my dad fought in World War II. Yeah, exa- absolutely. So Because we both already know it. <laughs> And Clone Wars was such a big thing, Obi-Wan knew, Luke already knew it. That's right. There was no Chekhov's Clone Wars, right? Like, that that information didn't come back to be vital at the the very end uh, of the movie. It's just there, because that's just how these people in in this galaxy talk. And that is brilliant. Like, that is one of the things that just doesn't happen because everything's got to be explained or everything needs to be relevant to the the plot and it, it you lose out on how natural people would actually talk did it really even happen before or because there really many, i can't think of too many other movies that references things that never really come into play no i think tarantino picked it up i i think Yes. Uh, you know. That's a good one. Once Tarantino came along, and especially, I mean, I remember the first time I watched Pulp Fiction, and they're talking about hamburgers in France, and it's just like, there's no way this is going to come up later in the film and save them. Uh, at least I don't think. <laughs> what, what is the <laughs> Either Roy yeah, and I, I would say Tarantino is way better at dialogue than George Lucas, for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think that is one thing that, Tarantino mastered and was something that I think that makes Pulp Fiction such a classic is the fact that he actually made dialogue the way that this is how people talk. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what made it fasc- fascinating. And so, yeah, that bringing up that in relation to, to what Lucas wrote in Star Wars is, um, yeah, it's no, from my perspective, it's no small thing because it's something that so many people don't do can't do if something's said it's got to be explained if something's said it's got to be a part of the the overall plot and so uh, yeah here i i I think it's used wonderfully and and uh yeah just you know this is just such a a great film and everything you said is why i liked playing the video games because it was just this world that existed yeah no for sure Mm mm-hmm my next movie is also a 1977 movie. It's it's not Star Wars. I didn't put Star Wars on the list because I was sure you'd put it, and so then I just used that as a. 
Yeah, yeah I reboot. did that kind of thing too. Yeah, uh, this one may seem a, li a little a little different and 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 not predictable, but this is uh, Dario Argento's Suspiria, which while it's not my favorite horror of all time, what it does is it encapsulates a type of horror that I've always liked. It's very visual, very haunting. It's got some moments of just brutal brutality, but it's also got creepy, quiet moments. This is a horror film that does also create a world. Uh, it, the, the, the Dance Academy becomes this living place. Uh, you know, I look at this film and, and then others that I've come to love, like The Witch and... In uh, Blair Witch Project, about how it, it sort of, it, yeah, they use moments of visual horror, moments of quiet horror, uh, this uh, almost artistic aspect to them as well. And, you know, Suspiria just, it, it, it like I said, it doesn't necessarily stand as my favorite horror. But it, it, like I said, it sums up everything that I like about a lot of horrors, what attaches me to most horrors, the idea of storytelling that is, um, there's an ominous feel to a lot of things, even when things are going well at this dance academy, uh, there is still this idea that something is is out there and it also plays on the fact like Blair Witch like the witch is there a supernatural element here is that to play or is everything easily explainable um, I, th I think that this film does all that so well as as well as having one of the best scores for a horror movie of all time um, yeah the, I, I I can't I don't know I think I've only seen it three times but all these things that I've said about it is why I was, all these reasons are why I was disappointed with the remake. Uh, because the remake seemed to forget all those things that made this film what it was. That creepy, um, you know, that feeling of an underlying evil that we couldn't place our fingers on, that, that we didn't quite know. And in the sequel, too, they really wanted to explain it. They, you know, really wanted to make sure we knew all about this coven and all that stuff. The 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 original is just you're kind of like at the end. What? Oh, these must be witches. <laughs> exactly. You, uh, yeah. You um you left Star Wars off your list because you're hoping that uh, I would mention it, or you knew I would mention it. Uh, it's just funny that your next pick is Suspiria because I left it off my list because I was pretty sure you're going to mention it or I really hope you're going to mention it because I, I remember our initial review of the Suspiria remake and you talked about how this horror movie was so important to you and that's why you're having a hard time with the remake and I would basically echo almost everything you said I feel this was a very influential horror movie uh, for me as well because it sort of showed me, oh, horror can be this too, because it's really, really violent. Like, I'm not denying that whatsoever, and I'll warn people if you see the original, it is just full of gore, and it's got some very disturbing scenes, but it's got this art feel to it. It's got this beauty to it. It Like, it does have the dancing. It has this majesty. It has this quietness to it, and I think that was the first time when I saw this, I realized, oh, horror can be these things too. It could be an art movie. It could be this 
It could be at times this quiet movie. And like you said, it. so many other horror movies beat you over the head of who the villain is or they want you to make very clear what's going on. And this movie is very comfortable with you not really knowing what's going on whatsoever. It's mysterious for most of the movie. It's, it's this unsettling feeling. You're wondering what's happening to these women. What are happening to these characters? What's going on here? You're unsettled throughout because you're not really understanding until sort of, like you said, the final act. And I think all that stuff is what drew me into kind of the storytelling into this movie because to me it's it shows where horror can be sort of at its great strength where horror works best is when you question what's happening here what's going on like part of what makes you disturbed and scared is when you're not really sure like i love halloween but it's very clear michael Myers is going to kill people with the spirit Part of the fear is you don't really know what is happening here and what's being told. Is this the truth or is this in someone's mind? Is someone going mad? I think if I remember correctly, the, the movie sometimes makes you even question if the lead is going mad. If mm-hmm. She's doing some of this stuff. And so I think all that is masterful. And it's, I think, no, I probably would have started reading Stephen King first. But Suspiria to me almost ties into Stephen King because some of his best writing and someone who I, I love dearly, Stephen King, is that idea of half the time you're sometimes wondering, is this in the character's head or is this supernatural stuff happening? And to me, that's some of the best horror is where half the movie you're wondering, wait, what is going on? Is mm-hmm. Suspiria, I'm not it's the first, but it really mastered that. It, it really did. It, 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 it absolutely did. And it, it's one of those movies, too, that, you know, uses so many different storytelling techniques and different emotions and moods and, and all that. And, I, you know... It does it all, like, 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you see it, and it's just like, wow, this is, like, this is art. This is, uh, you know, crafted so well from, from the environment and, and the use of, you know, just the use of the color red to... Yeah, the fact that we don't need to have the ex, um, you know, the exposition dump to explain who these people are or you know what's scary about them. You know, it's a really beautiful movie, which is a funny thing to say with something that's with gore. And it's like you said, I think it's a very artsy movie, and I think it's a movie that rewards re- rewatches. I think there's a lot of different themes here. I think there's a lot of different ideas going on here. I think there's a lot of symbolism. And like you said, that is why I know there is people who like the remake, but I think for someone like you and me that have such a deep attachment to the original, it's really hard to feel like how they justified the the follow-up. It is. I would have rather they just did something similar and not even call it Suspiria. This is my thoughts. Yeah, Yeah, I made like the movie more. I may have even Mm -hmm. recommended it, but because I had certain ideas of what Suspiria is and this, (laughs) I think the the big thing is for me with the remake thinking back is how drab it was. And I was like, that's not Suspiria. Yeah, it was very drab. And then the, the thing was, yeah, with the original, it's this idea that even in the the dialogue moments, there is this, there's still this unsettling. We don't know, can someone be trusted? You know, what do they know? And and so even just the the moments of dialogue between two people, uh, two students at the academy, it was still interesting and still felt like there was a danger uh, involved. So 
I uh, told my family that we were we were doing this show that I was trying to come up with ten movies that sort of reflect who I am. Movies that deep movies and I was told by all three family members that if I was doing a, movie, a show like this there's three movies that have to be on my list I was commanded that these three movies had to be on my list just because I guess I talk about them so much and I proudly showed my kids these movies and so uh, my next movie is one of those movies that was told that had to be on this list and back to the future which is a film that I've uh, shown my kids and have talked about many times. And if people remember the review, I talked about how the theme song is still in my head every time I succeed at some point in my life. Do, 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 do. Like, Back to the Future is another one like Star Wars. I get it's a big budget movie. I get it's popular. But it feels super personal to me. It has been something that it hit me as a young kid. And that's embedded to me and I have always personally connected to it. I have watched Back to the Future probably as much times as I've seen Star Wars. I have rewatched Back to the Future countlessly. I own several versions of it. It is a movie I absolutely adore. It's another one if I did a favorites list, it probably would be on it. It probably is a top 10 all-time favorite movie for me. I just have a very deep uh, connection to this movie and it, it, there's a few aspects to it. Uh, one, I think there's very much the idea of the outsider again. Uh, Luke Skywalker, like I said, he was sort of the, the person stuck on the desert planet that then rises up and does something else. Here, Marty's not necessarily like a loser per se, but his family's kind of they're kind of poor. Their family's kind of getting picked on. Uh, he's 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 told that he's always going to be a loser by the principal. He doesn't get into the the battle of the bands he wants. So things aren't necessarily going his way. And so again, there's that connection of that aspect. But then Marty sort of uses his talents and uses his gifts to rise up. He's good with a skateboard, so that's how he gets away from the bully. And so there's this idea that he has. So these certain skills that he's able to do those things. And then uh, you've got the George McFly character who he is this wanting to be a writer. So you can see how that connects to me. This idea of someone who wanted to do his stories but he's scared to show them and he allowed his anxiety to get in the way. And there's a girl he likes but he doesn't have the guts to ask her out. And I related to that as a kid too. I like girls but I didn't really know how to crack the code per se. And so all those aspects spoke to me because George has a moment where he rises up. He stands up to the bully. I mentioned before I was bullied as a kid. George McFly uh, stood up to the bully and took Biff down, won over the girl. And so there's a part of me that always had the wonders of like, I could stand up to the bully and I could win over the girl and everything's going to be kind of great in my life. And so that aspect personally, I think, connected to me. But on top of that, it's just a sense of adventure, going somewhere different, going in that magical car, the DeLorean. Those are all things that spoke to me as a kid. But I think what still speaks to me today is how heartfelt of this story is, how personal that this story is. It just feels like something that, despite all its special effects, that Robert Zemeckis is really trying to say something on that screen. I love all the characters here. I love the special relationships. I love the friendship between Doc Brown and Marty. Yes, you can question why a high school kid's hanging out with his old, wacky professor type, but they make that relationship work. And these are all things that as I get older, still matter to me. The importance of relationships, the importance of friendships, uh, the importance 
terms of so the fact that kind of in some ways destiny is in your own hand. You can change things in your life. You can make your life better. Like maybe you can't get a time machine. Maybe you can't change the past, but you can still you can still have that opportunity of being great. And I think that movie's kind of saying that is that Georgia Flight then does become a best-selling novelist, and and Marty does sort of change his face. And yeah, he did it with a time machine, but that, that that's for the sense of adventure. It's still telling us that we have the opportunity to change our own destiny and to make our life great. And I think that message is inspiring. I think it's hopeful. But on top of that, it's just a fun story. Uh, since the day my daughter has seen that movie, she always says, Great Scott! So, you know. So uh, my kids have connected with this movie specially. And so it's another reason why it's personal because I've shared it with my family and they know how much it means to me and they connected with it too. Yeah, it's, Robert Zemeckis, he really hit that uh, sweet spot for you, you know, back-to-back years with Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future. Yeah, no, he, he, he really did. He, he created two movies that are um, super special to me. And then actually he made another movie that did not make my list, but it was really close. Just a few years later, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah, I forgot about that. They, he's got quite the quite the filmography. That fellow, doesn't yeah, he? He he ruled the eighties for me. Yeah, yeah, he. Because I can't tell you how much I love used cars. Yo, see, I never even saw used cars. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. Okay, good. <laughs> it's just he made it, but I'm so, but. Uh, there's three that I really like, used cars. It was one of the was, ones where I guess it was a big flop, and he almost wasn't able to do Back to the Future until Spielberg stood up for him. So good. Spielberg stood up for him, things went well, and then we got Polar Express a few years later. Which is also not on my list. There's a good reason it's not on mine. Uh, Back to the Future, what a... What a film. I, I, I mean, it, it, strip away everything and just look at even looking at the components of uh, pacing. Uh, the, they're, uh, you know, running against the clock. That was always, uh, that was a big thing back then. Especially, you know, sp- uh, you know, a few years later with espionage movies and the, the bombs got to be diffused and, and having the time go down. Uh, I can't think of a better race against the clock than Back to the Future because you had this, you had these dual climaxes of the film. You had the Marty and his family storyline, and then that's done, and it's like, wow, what a great movie. But wait. There's still another finale to happen. And so I, I loved it for that. It's that you had this completely satisfying film, but there was still this huge, huge issue left with, with getting running against the clock. And uh, what a thrilling picture that made, just having that, those sort of, sort of dual finales. You know what's crazy, though, is that... Other movies that have tried to have sort of the double climax, like the idea where you have a big action sequence, then you have a big action sequence right after, normally wears me out. It yeah. normally it just it tires me out. So when you get to what's supposed to be the climax, I'm kind of done because I was like, I just went through this. Why don't you just end already? Mm-hmm. So there's something masterful about, I think, creating these characters we care about and the pacing of the movie and how they set it up that actually – it's exhilarating to get these back-to-back big cl- climaxes. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I don't know of any other 
Nobody's ever pulled that off. To, to do it like that? No, absolutely not. Because, I mean, like you said, usually you're spent. You're done. Right? We, we, we did it. Yay. Hooray. Hooray. They won. But here it works. And it doesn't just work well. It's just so gripping. And Zemeckis is, is wonderful at, um, you know, at, at the, the script and directing there. And then having the... Um, the sort of that urgency coming from uh, Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox's characters with the acting and, and the whole getting in the car and then getting that, the thing plugged in and all that stuff. It just works to this wonderful finale. And yeah, I mean, this film just barely missed my list as well. I actually just thought right now that in some ways... There's three climaxes in this movie because there's the Biff confrontation. Mm -hmm. Then there's where uh, Marty has to play the music to keep them together. And then there's the race against the car. And I think all three of them do because they're all very different. Like the the, the first two are sort of more at this personal. Well, one's kind of more at this personal level. The other is almost played a little bit kind of comedy, but there is still tension. And then the finale is the big special effects one. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it honestly it's a, it's phenomenal and you said that it was on video when it came out with the to be continued at the end, right? That is what uh through my research they said. My memory was that it was always there, but it claims that it was not there initially in the theater. It wasn't until it came clear, oh, we can make a sequel. Okay, cuz yeah, my memory was that it always said to be continued because I'm sure like I feel like I remember watching the movie and then being so relieved seeing that thinking there's going to be more oh gosh goodness thank you yeah because I, I saw it in the theater and I, I thought it did say that but I'm going to either now here's the thing though in the 80s movies were in the theater much longer and mm-hmm. there is potential that maybe I saw on a re-release or it had been there for a while and then they had added it because I definitely know the eighties. We were not like opening night fam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I figure it must have been like that for me as well, because I'm pretty sure I remember that always. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, but yeah, no. This is a movie. Once again, uh, it's one of those things where you know personal movies don't have to be independent. They could be big, big giant blockbusters. Especially if you, I think, if you saw them as a kid. I, I don't know if I could ever see a big blockbuster today that's personal, but to then be fair, there's not a lot of movies that have the characters and the attention to characters and like you said, like the performances that Back to the Future has there's not, they don't really make something like this today my next movie is from 85, it's a big blockbuster and it does have the attention to characters, it does have the sweet script it's got all that it's rambo first blood part two um (laughs) is this a good movie no i honestly you know every time i watch it i'm like there's there's a reason why the parody of this in uhf was so over the top because this movie is ridiculous there is just this air of just stupidity especially when you rewatch it and the stupidity of it everyone's shooting at john rambo and he kills everyone 
he's such a good soldier, but he's just, he's got his, you know, AK-47. He's firing it from the hip and just waving it wildly back and forth, and it kills everyone. Yeah, that's how, you know, Green Berets would shoot, and they wouldn't aim, they wouldn't use the sights on the gun. They would just wildly wave it back and forth. And here's the, back in the 80s, if the person had muscles, we bought what they did, right? It made sense. Yes, yes, the guy with the muscles is doing it, therefore this would be the way they would do it. Muscles made a lot of stuff very reasonable and logical back then. And when you see these films now, just like, what in the world were they thinking? But there's something about this film that sums up the idea of the 80s action movie. It's like it, it has everything that made the one-man army 80s action film fun and enjoyable. And for me, those films, uh, those movies in the 80s were huge, huge, massive part of my life. Yeah, I could have picked Predator easily. Absolutely could have picked Predator. But... For the muscle-bound film hero movies, Rambo First Blood Part Two. it's got the cheesiness. It's never boring. I mean, if you look at the technical aspects of this film, the explosions, beautifully done. The locations, outstanding. The, the immersion, the making you feel like you're in these environments, it's right there. The editing, beautiful. The, the pacing of this movie, it shoots by. Like, this film disappears in front of you. All that stuff, because <laughs> if, if honestly, if those things weren't there, this movie would be absolutely horrible because then you would really be exposed to the cheesiness of it. But this cheesiness is happening at breakneck speed in front of you, and it, <laughs> it all comes together to make this meal that is bizarrely entertaining and b- bizarrely delightful. And the other big thing, and let's give him credit because we've slagged him a lot on this show, is Rambo First Blood Part Two works because of Stallone. That guy has a special charisma. He has a special energy. He has a special uh, way of capturing the camera and the big screen. There's a reason why he was an action star of the 80s. There's a reason why there, a lot of people try to sort of copy the type of movies he made. You could say that maybe... He always tries to throw a message to his movies, and there's and maybe he started becoming a bit of a joke later in his career. But to me, this is Peak Stallone as an action star. I guess Peak Stallone as an actor would probably be Rocky, but as an action star, this is Peak Stallone. It it really is um, because it's it's entertaining. There's something about it that just that just works, and he maybe in his head he thought and I'm sure that in his head he thought that this was probably a thoughtful story as well <laughs> it's not but I mean who else pick pick another action star of the 1980s who could have made that scene where he's shooting at the Vietnamese officer uh, that, that guy's emptying his, his magazine from his pistol at Rambo tell me another star that could have made that scene work I don't think anyone could. I, I really don't. Uh, you, you compare sort of Schwarzenegger and Stallone as sort of the two big action stars of the 1980s, but what I think is interesting 
about them is they're both sort of in these kind of cheesy, campy movies. Schwarzenegger always seemed to be kind of aware of it, and he sort of puts in these sly comments. He was always a bit more comical. Stallone, he puts himself in these movies, and I think he is aware that his movies aren't fully serious, but why they worked very different than Schwarzenegger's is his characters were dead serious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it really, I mean, that's what made uh, Cobra so much fun to watch. It's what makes uh, Rambo First Blood Part 2 fun to watch. Yeah, I definitely don't have the same connection to this movie as you, but I think it is definitely a, a fun movie. And to me, I don't know if there's any other movie that encapsulates 1980s action better. There, I, I honestly can't say there is. Maybe Commando. This yeah, maybe Com- Commando. But, but again, Commando shows you how Schwarzenegger would handle it. It's a bit mm-hmm. more comical. Yeah, it is. It it is. I, so yeah, yay for the '80s action. One of my favorite things, though, I think ever, and this is just coming from what you had told me, that in the commentary of this movie, I guess Stallone goes on about how like oh like themes about how Vietnam has haunted us, and like th- there's this deep messaging, and then you hear from the director, and he's all like, I did this shot because uh, I liked mirrors. <laughs> That was that was Cobra because you told me about that, oh, sorry. <laughs> which I mean fits here because that was also Sylvester Stallone and uh, George uh, P. Cosmatos. Uh, they they teamed up for both of those films, and it it works. They they're like when you look at both those movies, there is something here that Stallone he's pushing something, and Cosmatos is like, yeah, but did you see that blow up? Did you see that guy? He blew up and his shoes remained. He seemed more aware of the movie he was making. Absolutely. All right, my next movie is the final of the movies that I was commanded by my family that had to be on this list, and it is the final, sort of the movies of the night. 1980 that I shared with Everett and this is his favorite movie and if anyone asks what his favorite movie is he always points to this one and so I really had no choice but to put Raiders of the Lost Ark on this list because one my family said I have to but two realizing how instantly when I was what movies do I want to share with my son it was Star Wars Back to the Future Raiders of the Lost Ark those are kind of the the mandatory things and so I knew how deeply personal this movie was and we i sort of talked about how we didn't have big trouble little i didn't put big trouble little china on my list i was kind of bummed about that but i feel this one kind of captures this a bit because where's the lost art is this movie that was very heavily influenced of the serials of the 40s and the 30s, the adventure serials that used to exist. George Lucas and Steven Spielberg want to capture something from another era, these kind of pulpy stories, these over-the-top adventure tales, these things that were never really grounded in reality, and a movie that doesn't take itself too seriously. Raiders of the Lost Ark, while rewatching it with Everett, I realize there's a lot of sense of humor. There's a lot of campiness here. This thing is not, it's this big blockbuster that kind of, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, and it's not really sort of seeing itself as this super serious kind of picture, and so it's capturing that 40s vibe. It's capturing the pulpy novels of the time and so this movie is on here too for that reason because i as a kid after watching star wars after watching uh lost 
our original Lost Ark, I tracked down the old pulpy novels with the Conans and the Buck Quarter Mines and these stories of people going on an adventure. And so I, I connected to that level. This is one of the movies that sort of got me looking at what did older movies, what were they like? What were older novels like? What were these adventure heroes? What's going on in older comic books? And so this really opened me up at being excited and catching out other pop culture. It's also one where... I did this in my backyard endlessly as a kid. I was in Indiana Jones very often. I went on many adventures to jungles. I wanted to go to like Africa and South America because of Indiana Jones. I wanted to go to exotic locales. I wanted to go all over the world. And I would do it all in my backyard as I would battle the different evils. And so that this movie really captured my imagination and what I did as a kid. And now I see my son, same excitement. He wants to be in Indiana Jones. He wants to go on these adventures. And I've mentioned this on the podcast, and it was more Goonies that inspired it, but I would bring that imagination to school, and I would bring my friends on these adventures, too. Uh, I talked about how how I I made a map, and I... Pretend that I found it in my uh, map book and told all my friends at recess, we got to follow this map and find the great treasure. And that's what these type of movies did. It made me sort of uh, want to seek adventure and create adventure for myself as a kid. And I mentioned sort of how as a kid sometimes I felt kind of powerless or I didn't necessarily fit in. And what things like Star Wars and Jones did for me is it fueled the storyteller in me, it fueled the imagination in me. And looking back, I realized that was kind of the strength that I had. That was my power. That was my force. was the fact that I had this imagination. Because I remember kids gravitated towards me because I came up with these fantastical treasure hunts. I came up with these uh, fantastical adventures. People gravitated towards me because I was a storyteller. I make up these stories. And so I realized now that that was kind of my strength. And these kind of stories or these type of movies are really what uh, I thrived on and sort of sparked that in me. I mean, if we were young, I was too young to know, you know, when uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, because it came out in 81 and I was born in 78. But when I found out about it and, you know, someone says, well, as the poster says, it's from the creators of Jaws and Star Wars. And as a kid, that means this must be good. I hadn't been disappointed. Like, there wasn't this idea that maybe those people we idolize could let us down. So therefore, if we add Steven Spielberg to George Lucas, obviously it's going to be perfect. And it was. I mean, how crazy is that? This movie was perfect. It's a perfect movie. Yeah. And... You know, nowadays, it definitely, hey, from this creator and this creator, uh, it might be good. We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> but back when I was a child, it meant it had to be perfect. And just the fact that it did turn out to be actually, from every perspective, a perfect movie was mind-blowing. Uh, mind yeah, I, I probably didn't see it in 1981, because you're right, I've really young. But I know I had definitely seen it by the time the sequel came out which was 84, right? So mm-hmm. sometime between 81 and 84, I had to see it. But yeah, this would be one where I saw it on uh, on video. It's probably one of the first rentals, and I was completely captured and captivated. I don't know if my dad had already seen it, and he was showing it to me. At the time, I thought we were all were sharing it for the first time. 
so yeah, this is definitely one of those movies that really, um, like I said, kind of captured my imagination and, and gave me that idea of storytelling. What I like about this one too, uh, I had a hard time. I, I wanted to put a historical film on here because I am a big uh, fan of history, but again, this list was just so hard to fit everything in. And so this picture, even though it definitely is not set in any kind of reality, I do like the fact that, you know, there is a little bit of historical aspect when you got sort of the Nazis and there's a little, it plays a little bit with kind of history, but with a fictional take. And so I like that blending of sort of history and reality with fantasy, because it's very much a fantasy film too, especially when you get to the finale. And that's where you kind of hit my sweet spot. History meets fantasy. Which, I mean... Probably, well, here's the thing, because you would have been uh, probably big on things like Conan the Barbarian and all that, because it did feel historic, it did feel sort of epic of a different time, plus throw in that fantasy element, element. and yeah, I completely agree with you, because move, there was that aspect of, okay, it's not just we're traveling to a different location, it's a different time altogether, It's it there's something interesting and exciting about that as a kid, which... I think it's why, I, you know, you put into words why I liked this, why I liked Clash of the Titans, because it, even though, let's be honest, his, just because something's old doesn't mean that sorcery existed. However, it it felt like maybe it was more possible because it was a different time. I don't know, as a That's kid, true. maybe the logic doesn't necessarily work, but it we know that it's harder for that to exist in the current realm or current reality because we know it doesn't. But if it's in the past, why couldn't it have happened? Yeah, no, uh, definitely. And I was actually mentioning that with, uh, not necessarily the the, fan, the fancy part, but I was actually with Emily, that I think one of the reasons that makes uh, Indiana Jones so universal, why it, like, it connects to my son, it seems to be something that keeps on working when you show it again, is the fact that they set it in another time period, because in some ways it almost feels less dated, because they set it into a different time period, like it was 1980, but they set it in the like 30s. I think it almost gives a bit of a timeless feel because it wasn't trying to be current. It wasn't trying to be modern. It was playing, like you said, from another time, but with that fantasy built, uh, bent. And so it sort of created it as this other world and something that, so it came off timeless, even though it's a period piece. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting way to look at it. And I think you're absolutely right. Is that because of when it was set, it doesn't, uh, we don't get caught up necessarily in the dated elements of, oh, look, Karen Helen's wearing leg warmers and she's got crimped hair. It, it saved us and from that. You, you, you also mentioned another movie I should say that was at one point in on my list but had to get bumped because uh, another totally kind of subgenre that meant a lot to me, and that was Clash of Titans, mainly because Clash of Titans had the stop-motion creatures, and I think I mentioned on Kong, I have a super soft spot to the stop-motion kind of fantasy adventures. And so Clash of Titans, I wanted to be on my list, so thank you for just kind of name-dropping it so I can also say it was a it was a runner-up. Yeah, Clash of the Titans, for me, the Sinbad movies, which had some stop motion as well loved them all yeah bring them on my next film uh is from the 80s as well and uh, this was one of those movies where 
it's a sequel, and I didn't know whether to put it or the original film on the podcast. And I had a big debate over that uh, to the point where I watched them both within the last few days. Chris, you probably know what I'm talking about because I've mentioned a, a movie that was another weather app. Yeah. For uh, me. <laughs> I'm talking about Aliens. And this, uh, I think, so this is uh, 80s action as well, but this is so different. Uh, from 80s action it just happened to come out in the 80s this is one of those films that combines genres and was one of those movies that i saw that oh wow it's not just sci-fi it's action it's not just action it's adventure it's not just that it's also horror and james cameron was able to take so many components of different genres and weave them into one film that uh felt like it 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 um you know, it rose above things. Like if there's somebody who says, well, I don't like sci-fi, I'm pretty confident that they would still probably love Aliens. Uh, it's it's a movie that, it, it just, it, to me, as far as a, a film goes, it's something that, that really is just beyond genre and uh, is very, very uh, engaging to, uh, to to people. I, for the first time in almost 20 years, uh, saw the theatrical uh, version of it. And this is very interesting with Aliens. So the theatrical release, I would give four stars to. However, the director's cut is a thousand times better than it. and But I can only give four stars to that. But it's one of those cases where... Yeah, definitely, if you're going to watch it, you have to watch the director's cut. It gives so much more motivation to the character of Ripley. It gives so much... It, it gives reason for the character of Newt. Uh, Newt, in the normal version, is just sort of why she here, necessarily. Like, what's, what's going on? But when you see the director's cut, everything makes sense, and it all fits perfectly. As well in the director's cut, it really leans heavily on the build-up to the aliens attacking the Marines. It draws that anticipation out it draws the weight out it makes it feel more dire it makes it feel hopeless uh it, it's one of those movies that not only from an imagination perspective uh these cool looking aliens uh, you know the production design everything so many video games have used aliens as uh, a template for how vehicles of the future will look it, they've used it i mean if you if anyone who's played halo uh, or a sequel of halo the very first one was pretty much so inspired by aliens as far uh, i mean aesthetics guns uh, characters, everything, and when, when I rewatched it for for this, it, it really stood out as yeah, this sort of captures everything I like. It 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 really is that idea that genres can blend together, that something doesn't have to be nailed down by a, a label or anything. Uh, it, it's it's got that sense of imagination with this world that. Uh, is is so well thought out as far as production design and alien design and the design of the Marines and all that stuff. It is just from many different perspectives, from storytelling perspective, from acting, uh, from, like I mentioned, set design, wardrobe, all that stuff. It's just everything is absolutely perfect. And 
you know, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before how the first time I watched this was in French uh, because I'd wanted to see this film so, so, so badly for a long time. And it was on late night television on a French channel that we had. And I watched it from start to finish. Didn't have subtitles or anything. And even watching it in a different language... I was blown away and I was entertained the entire time. This is definitely one of those films that if there's a movie that says Scott, it's aliens. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Cause now you've recently seen the theatrical cut. I'm pretty sure, but maybe, maybe I'm making things up now that isn't uh, Capone and some of the other guys who sort of end up being kind of tomato cans. They get a few more scenes in the director's cut, right? Like, you get to know them a bit more? Yeah, yeah. The... Yeah, I believe you do know. See, the thing is, now I'm, I'm, I'm wondering. Because uh... I, I just felt like, because when you were mentioned they built to it more, I also just felt like some of the Marines that don't make it through, you still had a connection to them a bit. And I thought it was the, to the director's cut where they almost trick you where some of the Marines that go earlier or go early, you actually get more time at the beginning where you actually think, oh, they're going to be the leads. It's, it, it, it plays around with that uh, better. I mean, it's, it's a better film. And, and that's the, the, the... But the, that's saying it's a better film than what is a great film. Yeah. We're talking about a four-star film that has a version of it that is so much better, which is hard to believe and mind-boggling. But when, yeah, if you've seen the theatrical version first and then you watch the director's cut, which, I mean, the theatrical version is two hours and 17 minutes long. And one thing I should say, too, about the theatrical version is that the, the final 30 minutes is almost in real time. And what as, as much as I love Star Wars, even as a kid, I knew that there was a big disconnect with the amount of time they had and what was happening. And that was something that happened in a ton of movies. You have the race against the clock, you have the threat or whatever, but it's just like maybe that last minute or that last 30 seconds is somehow five minutes. And Or Empire Strikes Back. Yes. <laughs> but this one, it is very, very close to real time at the, at the end. And it's... Um, I mean, it's still not real time, but that adds a neat element to it. Yeah, uh, another thing that I... There's a few things with Aliens to me that really kind of uh, stands and connects to me, why it is a personal movie for me, even though I didn't put it on uh, on my list. One that... Sort of another thing about sort of the director cut that I think really works is how they frame it when you talk about uh, Newt and sort of when you learn more about the fact that Ripley had like a daughter which gets mentioned but gets cut in the theatrical it really frames this picture as one of almost like a battle of matriarchs it really frames this picture as something about motherhood well that's the thing it's it's the deletion of those scenes that changes not only the flow of the film but the actual themes of the film the the movie is a different movie the point of the film is different and uh, it's yeah, it, it really is. I think that's why the first time I saw the, the director's cut, I was just like, wow, that gives me a whole new look entirely on uh, on the film. Yeah, because I, I think it is about sort of those parallels of motherhood, the, the, uh, the strength of it, uh, the risks that you take. Because when you look at it, what Ripley is doing, it's kind of the same thing that the queen is doing. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's, um, yeah, I, I recommend to anyone to watch the, the director's cut. And another thing I really like about this, one, we mentioned this before, so I'll just say quickly, I love the fact that this is a sequel, but it's almost a different genre. The first is horror. This one is kind of an action war movie. I love that they can sort of stay in that same world but play different uh, things. But what I also like, this film does a really good job of referencing the, the, the first picture and making things for the first picture matter without it being balled down rather than like a lot of sequels kind of wink wink or they redo the scene again. What they do here is the idea that uh, the relationship between Bishop and Ripley is key because of what got established in the first one. Her kind of distrust of androids or issues with androids gets really put in place because of the first one. And, I mean, it's an interesting story in the in the second one, but it gets enhanced if you've seen the original. Like, you really kind of get why she has this animosity, and that relationship is enhanced with knowledge of the first. I love any movie that kind of does that, where it can use the, the previous films to enhance the storytelling here. I also just like it does things like building upon the corporation. You know them kind of in the first one, and then you really get to know how dark these guys are in the second one. And so all those aspects, I think James Cameron and does a really good job of uh, spreading out the world and the relationships in the second one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and like I said, I didn't know which whether it was going to be the first or the second uh, movie that was going to make this list, but I went with the second. Yeah, and so I just feel this movie is another one that did a lot for kind of my uh, storytelling. I just want to quickly say Raiders of the Lost Ark wasn't necessarily, was not necessarily on my list initially until basically my family said it has to be on the list and so raise of the lost art meant it bumped out a few others that i wanted to be on the list uh romancing the stone was something i really wanted to be on the list but it got bumped out raise of lost art because i had that connection again someone out of their element a writer out of their element who then sort of uh goes on the adventure, a karate kid standing up to bullies, having a, a Mr. Miyagi to be with you. This was very close to my list. It got bumped. Uh, Die Hard, very close to my list, uh, but uh, got uh, bumped. And then some kind of wonderful, another thing about like Eric Stoltz or the girl and the dream, and then have that moment where he could prove that he's more than just an outsider. So I had... Uh, all those kind of pictures that were really close to my list, but uh, got bumped out. And so all those sort of fit with sort of someone feeling kind of out of their skin, but rising up. So now I'm moving on to films that are a little bit different than that. These ones aren't necessarily kind of the outsider of the skin or, or kind of my kid movies. Uh, my number five is something that I'm connected to because the first time I saw it, it kind of blew me away of what storytelling can be and how you can just have multiple genres. And this is another movie that probably is, would make my list of top 10 all-time favorite movies, and that's Fargo, the Coen Brothers epic and what I think is the Coen Brothers' best movie because there's a lot of things I love about this movie. One is it's a really good kind of caper film. Like You, you know who is the people that are behind it, but how the mystery kind of, or how the case unfolds, how sort of the mistakes that people make, how greed overcomes 
them. I liked all those aspects. It works as sort of this uh, kind of thriller picture. But why it sort of, I think, represents me is I really wanted to put a thriller on this list because I've always had a soft spot for thrillers. I have a soft spot for mysteries. But I'm also quirky. I also love things that are a little bit different. And this movie is just full of quirky, weird characters. William H. Macy, Steve Buscemi. Like, you've got these characters that are just... They're not typical big-screen characters. They've got this nuance to them. And they make these mistakes. And I just love this weird world in Minnesota. I love the dialogue. It's another thing that feels breathed in. It feels just day-to-day. -day, and I think the Coen brothers catch up perfectly. And that's the type of stuff that I have a soft spot for. And it's the type of stuff that I, I want to sort of create as a writer. And so I think this is one of the movies that sort of inspired my style of writing, which is kind of quirky characters and, and oddball worlds and all that stuff I connect to very, very much. But another thing that made this movie, it, it has a dark sense of humor. It's very quirky. But at its core, you've got Marge Gunderson, someone who is pregnant, someone who is caring. You have this great relationship with her and her husband. Those moments where he gets out of bed, she gets up early and he gets out of bed too because I'm going to make you some eggs. Yeah, you need some eggs. you got to have a breakfast. And I love their relationship. I love the sweetness. It's not your typical Hollywood romance. It's not hot and steamy. It's just lived in. It's just a natural loving relationship they just go through their day-to-day -day, and i love that aspect like i thought it was a great it's one of the best relationships ever put on this big screen as far as i'm concerned i think uh francis mcdormand it's one of her best performances she's incredible as marge gutterson you instantly relate to her i love the fact that she is so whip smart she's ahead of everybody she knows how to solve this and that's another reason why i need to put this on the list too i love that it is a strong female lead if she is a great, strong female lead, and I've always been attached to strong females. My mom was a strong woman. My grandma was a strong woman that kept her household together. My mom is someone who would stand up for her kids. I married a very strong, opinionated woman, and I think sometimes we've got this idea that, you know, women need a man, or, or this idea you know, that just these certain things where they're, they're more fragile or whatever. And I like that Marge sort of shows that women can also be leaders and they can be the top of their field in some ways that they're stronger than men. And I think that's something that's in Fargo and that's something that I attach to a lot. And I just, I love the fact that this movie has a lot to say. It's probably one of the most rewatchable movies ever. Like, I think it's one of the best Coen movies, and that's saying a lot because I love the Coen brothers. I have a very special spot for Fargo. I remember the moment I'm, I saw it, I was like, that's the greatest movie ever. It's going to win the Academy Award, so of course it did. They ended up, the Coen brothers ended up getting those, those awards later on, which, uh, no, I mean, I liked No Country for Old Men, but if I was to, if you were going to ask me which one were they deserving of more so for uh, the awards... I would have said Fargo. It's such a unique movie, and I really feel that if someone watches this and sort of knows my taste and style, I don't know. To me, it's hard to say for yourself something. I realize while making this list, I 
almost would have been easier for me to pick like 10 movies that represent you and you pick 10 movies that represent me because sometimes I think sometimes the outsiders know it but if I had to say it I feel like you watch this and knowing my taste this is like pure Christopher movie it, it, it is it is this one like I've only seen the once I'm not gonna lie it's it's a movie that I should have seen more times and it's always it's forever on my my radar to, to re-watch uh, because the Coen Brothers, well, there's going to be a Coen Brothers movie on my list. Not going to lie. We talked about the the impact of the dialogue writing of Tarantino, and I think that the Coen Brothers are on the same scale as far as dialogue. It can be oh, easily, yeah. Just it is masterful. It is just elegant. Uh, it is unique, like nothing else. And uh, I, I mean, Fargo. Fargo was the first Coen Brothers movie I saw. Then it was Raising Arizona. Then A Brother Where Art Thou. And each time I just had this. Each time I saw a, another Coen Brothers movie, it was just this increased appreciation for what they did, for what they did with their characters. Because they could have characters that are quirky and all that, but there doesn't mean that they're um, they're not important. That they're not valued. That there's something wrong with them. They can have quirky characters can be strong they don't have to be undervalued yeah and i don't think anyone's undervalued in here uh, some people say that the coen brothers with their dark humor sometimes has disdain for their characters but i watching this i think they have a lot of affection for marge and i, th I think there's a lot of affection for that couple and i think here with the characters that are even sort of kind of darker so like William H. Macy, the evil path he goes. I think they do a good job of showing his desperation, and I think they do have moments where you can connect with this character. I mean, Marge doesn't come until quite a bit into the movie, so for a bit, you kind of think William H. Macy's the lead. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's, um, I don't know, it's just very clever. There's something smart about... Um, uh, about how the the Coen brothers can write in Fargo, from what I remember being very clever uh, tale that it's I don't know. There's something interesting about the contrasting of the, the hominess of the environment that it's set in. Um, it going off of my memory, that was the biggest emotional impact of what you're seeing compared to this quaint, let me fix you some eggs kind of small town life. Yeah, I love the let me fix your egg stuff. I also just love the little thing. Like, it feels so real. Like, there's a part where the mom just made a dinner. Uh, the mom ends up getting uh, kidnapped. She just makes a dinner, and the boy goes, well, I'm going to go to McDonald's with my friends. <laughs> and, and that just feels so kind of natural and real. And I also love the scene where Marge uh, meets an old high school friend, and then it sort of, she finds out that uh, his life's kind of, fall apart and he's kind of trying to hit on her but she's married and it seems like such a throwaway scene and you're wondering that's jarring why is this in here but it gives some character elements and you also realize that that's the moment that marge all of a sudden clicks in and realizes that the william h macy character could be lying to her when she finds out that this guy wasn't necessarily telling the truth when they were on this uh, buffet date and so i just to me, like you said, it's a genius script and it has all these little elements and it just sometimes they just feel like character elements. But then when you look at the whole movie, you realize every scene here was necessary and it, it builds on characters, it builds on this plot. It's, 
to me, and I know we've said a lot on this show, it's a perfect movie. Yeah, I'm going to go out of order, out of chronological order uh, right now to um, go to my next, or to, yeah, the... The film that I'm going to say is next is is a Coen Brothers film as well, and it's actually their next release after Fargo, and this is The Big Lebowski, and uh, you know on on the, the the driving force behind this film is that dialogue from the Coen Brothers. The film, it's uh, I'm. For the people who watch it and have rewatched it, it's a, such a quotable movie. It's insanely quotable. So much of the humor, so much of the charm comes from the dialogue. Yeah, the situations are interesting, but it's what people are saying. It's the characters of Jeff Bridges as the dude with John Goodman as Walter Subcheck. And, uh, it, it, <laughs> and Donnie, played by Steve Buscemi, who you, you just mentioned in uh, Fargo, this film and and the type of humor it has and the sharpness of the dialogue, I mean, for me, the reason why this one's so personal is because this is how I wish I could write dialogue. This movie is, I wish I could come up with that kind of quirkiness, that kind of delivery, because sometimes the lines in here that, that make you laugh aren't even actual lines that taken out of context would be funny. It's the moment that they're in. It's the delivery, the way C Philip Seymour Hoffman would say this line, or Julianne Moore would say this. And, and and that's what makes this movie so great. It's it's the words, but mixed with each of the actors who plays the, the people in here, the way the dialogue comes out of their mouths, the moments that they're in. Uh, it's to me is just absolutely fascinating and so different. I mean, after I'd seen Fargo and then a few years later seeing the big Lebowski kind of thinking, wow, this is, uh, this is, you know, different. And then also when I saw the big Lebowski realizing, wow, they took what I loved about raising Arizona, but they like, they jacked it up on steroids here. It is just so much more impressive. I, I think what, the Coen brothers are able to show it's that you can have such a skill in the small things in how something is delivered in a moment and that that can be a super special thing. Um, yeah, this, this film is one of my favorite all time movies. It wouldn't make my best of, you know, my top 10, you know, best of list of all time. But as far as the types of humor, I like, uh, because like, Honestly, when I saw The Big Lebowski, I hadn't seen anything like that. And after seeing it sort of open your mind about what humor could be as far as delivery and dialogue and, yeah, something that I would absolutely, I'm continually trying to chase is the way that things are written in that film. Yeah, uh, like I said, Fargo is my all-time favorite Coen Brothers movie and it also probably would make my best of all time a list. But I love the Coen Brothers, period. Like, if we ever make a list of sort of the most influential movies or the most influential, like, uh, filmmakers on our life, the Coen Brothers have to be almost at the top of my list. He's right up there with sort of stuff. Star Wars sort of had such a deep part of my writing at the beginning because it got me to want to tell creative stories. But the Coen Brothers, because of their smart writing and their quirky characters, it opened my eyes to a different type of writing. It sort of showed me, like, 
oh, this is how you could tell stories. Like, you can sort of have these weird scenes that don't necessarily seem to have any purpose, but at the deeper level, it explains us to the characters, and it is moving the plot forward in a different way. And you could have dialogue that just seems like... We're seeing it with Quinn Tarantino, but the Coen brothers do it too, where dialogue where it's just kind of how people talk, and it's not about driving the plot, but at the same time it builds up the characters, and it gets to the plot in a different direction. And the Coen brothers did that with Raising Arizona, they did it with Fargo, they did it with almost like every picture that they've created, and they definitely did it with Big Lebowski, and... Big Lebowski is right up there with when you come with these colorful characters and this plot that's kind of all over the place that you're trying to kind of catch up with, but you're hooked because you are connected by these characters. And what I like about almost every Coen Brothers film, too, is it sort of defies genre in a way. Is a Big Lebowski a mystery? Is Big Lebowski a comedy? Is Big Lebowski a drama? Is Big Lebowski a character study? The answer is yes. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Is, is it is it any of those things? Yeah, it it is those things. It it absolutely is. And I mean, if we were gonna do a fa- best movies of all time, um, then then uh, Inside Lewin Davis is probably in my top ten. Uh, that's of I, I mean, it, it it's almost some of these movies you can just see this maturity and uh, development of the Coen Brothers as time goes on. Uh, I didn't really necessarily like old country for uh no country for old men as much as uh some people did but when true grit came out to me that was like okay this is the this is them doing a, a serious film but still with the their their flair is there their style is there whereas i didn't find that with no country for old men but true grit it's like wow you you still can tell that this is a coen brothers film but boy oh goodness is it still very serious yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Like, it, like, yeah, like True Grit definitely has that Coen Brothers uh, flair and uh, colorful characters. No Country for Old Men, I think, was uh, a departure. They tried something different. It worked for me. I think I liked it more uh, than you did, but I could totally see where that one kind of stands out different. And then Big Lebowski, I would say that in Raising Arizona might be sort of the perfect depiction of what people think when they think Coen Brothers. Yeah, yeah, I would uh, I would totally totally agree with that. Which which but at the same time they still like I said they have these quiet moments, they have these character moments. I mean, the dude is this very comedic character, but as time goes on, you kind of connect to him and you care about him and there's more to him than first approach. And I think that's another thing that the Coen Brothers are really good at is creating these characters that you don't necessarily attach to right away. Right away. They're not necessarily likable characters, but as time um, goes on the film, it kind of grows on you, because uh, Razor Arizona would be the same thing. I mean, they, they kidnap a kid, like, and inside Louis <laughs> Davis, he's this curmudgeon, and then with Big about the dude, he's kind of a layabout, but as the film goes on, you kind of connect to them, you kind of care about them, and the Coen brothers do a really good job of kind of peeling the layers on these characters. They're not just quirky for quirky sake, they're nuanced. Yeah, absolutely, which makes the which makes their talent just show even more to have these characters that, like you said, we do end up connecting to. Yeah, no, for sure. So I, I, I like, I like your pick. Good, good job, Scott. Thank you. And so far for you too. Good job. So 
if Fargo was an easy one for me because I really liked it, but I, I felt like there were certain directors that had to make this list. There were certain directors that connected to me in some way, and so I had to figure out what was the movie this director made that worked for me. I knew Quentin Tarantino had to be on my list. What I struggled with was what movie of Quentin Tarantino's would be on my list, and it was five different movies. But in the end, I decided to go with the movie that is kind of atypical Quentin Tarantino, but it also captured a genre I wanted on here, which is sort of the crime noir, the, again, like sort of the thriller, maybe not necessarily the heist, but this idea of being in the crime world. And I think it was perfectly captured by Quentin Tarantino, which may be one of Quentin Tarantino's best movies, but definitely his most underrated, and that's Jackie Brown, which was a picture that initially Scott and I both were kind of like, that's the weak Tarantino, that's not the good one. And then we decided to revisit, and we said, what the heck is wrong with us? This is amazing. Since we did that revisit, Scott, I think I've seen Jackie Brown about five or six times. If it's because Hollywood Sweet has it. If it it is a I stop what I'm doing and watch movie. If all of a sudden I'm flipping the channel or my I'm about to do a podcast movie, but I turn on the TV and it's Jackie Brown, I have to watch all of Jackie Brown first, and then I go see the movie I'm supposed to see for the podcast. I love Jackie Brown. I absolutely adore Jackie Brown. Same reason for Fargo is one of them. A strong woman lead. Jackie Brown is an amazing character. She is so smart. She's always ahead of everybody. She's ahead of her love interest. She's ahead of the Samuel Jackson character. And it is fun being with smart characters. It's great seeing such a strong female character in this. Uh, Tarantino sometimes has been criticized, sometimes with some of his movies being misogynistic. But I do think he likes creating strong female characters, and that is here. Jackie Brown is just keeps on getting ahead of people. I love the twists and turns in this picture. It's one of Tarantino's movies where there is a lot of visual style, but where it stands out, I think, is the fact that that he it stands out because he creates these loving characters it's not necessarily like with the pulp fiction with the flash and these these shocking moments or sort of like this this incredible dialogue i think the dialogue is really great but he creates these really heartfelt characters i feel like while watching this movie that tarantino really loves these characters he cares about uh jackie brown he cares about the bondsman i think this is the best relationship Tarantino's ever written. I love the relationship between those two people. I think it's really sweet. I think it's Tarantino's sweetest movie. I think there's a lot of sincere, sweet moments here. It's the part where he really shows a heart. And so I think that's why I connect with that. I connect with the sweetness. I, I, I connect with the tenderness. But on top of that, it's still very violent. It's still very edgy. It's got the language you're used to. It's got that super edge. It's an incredible mystery. It's absolutely ca uh, captivating. Uh, all the twists and turns. Uh, the Michael Keaton character is fun as the cop. There's a lot of sense of humor. There's lightness to go with the edgy moments. This is another movie sort of like Fargo that it sort of taught me how to write a little bit. It taught me like, oh, this is a different way you can do something. Yes, it's a neo-noir. Yes, it's a mystery. Yes, it's a crime picture. But in the end, it's about characters. And I think that's the thing that someone like a Stephen King, the Tarantino, Coen Brothers have taught me. Because you can have a great story, you can have a great plot, but in the end, what matters most is captivating characters. 
I'm really glad you picked this film. If you were going to talk about the the history of this podcast, it just just this podcast and what we've we've done over the years, Jackie Brown is probably one of the most uh, found. Movies. Yeah, exactly. This was a huge foundation. Um, I think it bo- got both of us to realize that we can't discredit any memories we have of films. We have to watch them again. You, you have know, to. That's it. one of the reasons why I had to put it on here. That's another thing. This movie taught me the importance of revisiting. Yeah. Absolutely, you 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 can't just keep on to your 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 thoughts on a film. You have to give them another shot. Uh, Jackie Brown, I thought was the most boring thing ever when I saw it uh, when it was rented, and revisiting it, just this uh, eye-opening moment of wow, one of just the story is phenomenal. You nail it, but the, about the characters, this is just. One of the best movies out there. I, you know, hold this up as Tarantino's best. At least, I think. If not, you know, it's it's hard to say which one is best. Is because you could change your mind depending on the day and the temperature outside. What movie may be his best film? But it's close though. Yeah, it's it's always going to be in the running. Yeah, I, I would definitely. It's it's top three. It's just the top three kind of juggles around. Exactly, and and uh, you know Pam Greer in this in this movie is phenomenal. Like I I think Robert Forster did a great job, deserved the nomination. But how could Pam Greer be overlooked here for what she did? How could Samuel Samuel L. Jackson is just absolutely terrifying in here at times? Uh, Bridget Fonda is great. Actually, it's it's wild that. You know, I picture her in this film, and then the next, the very next calendar year, she's, uh, you know, in A Simple Plan. and Totally different. Just Yeah, absolutely. And I think that shows just how good she, she is, is, to be able to go from that one role to the other. And it is, I mean, other than it looking like Bridget Fonda, there's nothing similar at all about either of those uh, performances. The performance is so good after we... After I watched a simple plan for this podcast, I had to go on IMDb and be like, "Was she in Jackie Brown? <laughs> I thought she was, but that's not the same person, is it? Oh, it is. It she is. Is really good, and it's crazy how close they are. Uh, Robert De Niro is also good as sort of the uh, kind of layabout crook that uh, gets annoyed with the uh, Bridget Fonda character. He plays something a little bit different because he normally plays like a leader character. Here, he's more of a thug. And he, uh, he does it really well. Samuel Jackson, like you said, is absolutely terrifying. I want to say something about Pam Greer. And, well, one thing that Tarantino always did well is bringing back some of his favorite past actors and giving them another shot. Like, you could tell that's something he definitely does is he wants to give roles to maybe actors that aren't necessarily hot right now. I mean, he did it for uh, Travolta. And he does it here for uh, Pam Greer and Don Johnson. Like he's done it throughout his career. But I really think, and it's great writing. It's a great story. But there's absolutely no way this movie works if it's anyone other than Pam Greer. Oh, 100%. She is uh, to have somebody of, you know, the, the, the title character. Um, there needs to be an importance about them. There needs to be a reason we're watching it. There needs to be... <sighs> everyone else is sort of in the periphery. They're all interesting folk and all that, but she's carrying the film and she does a phenomenal job. One of the things that I really disliked about 
Kill Bill Volume Two was was the casting because it it did seem like very Tarantino type casting to get um oh what's his name um, David Carradine thank you yeah it seemed very Tarantino casting to get him however the very end of that film the long dialogue section that was supposed to be the the big you know finale of the film he couldn't carry it so I understand that there's a reason for the choice. But it didn't execute well, I don't think, just as a performance um, aspect. However, Pam Greer here is, she is the perfect person here to play Jackie Brown. She's the only one to play Jackie Brown, and she nails every single scene. Yeah, no, she embodies Jackie Brown. She's got a great, great strength. She's got a great screen presence. You can see why she was a hot star in the 1970s. It was great to see her take it on. Uh, one last thing that I should also reference is Jackie Brown is based off the novel Rum Punch, which was written by Elmore Leonard, who did a lot of crime novels, and he was known for basically amazing dialogue. So, I mean, if there's one, so, I mean, Quintet Tino, basically almost all his movies were original. So it makes sense that if he was going to adapt one, you get someone from, like, Elmore Leonard, who did similar great dialogue. Hmm. My... My next film, now that I have to go back into my chronological order, is a movie that we reviewed on, right here on the podcast. It is uh, an example of the international espionage film that was very, very popular. It is uh, a movie about Russians played by Brits uh, um, with not even close to Russian accents. Well, I... Don't think, yeah, Tim Curry. There's nothing even attempting Russian going on in the Hunt for Red October. Uh, not like it's it's just not even attempting it. Uh, and actually, uh, when we talked about No Remorse, we referred to this movie because the one character was supposed to be the the daughter of uh, Germs Earl Germs Earl James Earl Jones' character, Admiral Greer. The Hunt for Red October for me. Clancy verse. Yes, let's build up the Clancy verse. The Hunt for Red October for me is the movie that if it is on, we don't have TV now, but it was the exact same thing as you. If it's on, even though like I'm about to go to bed, I've stayed up way too late. It's two o'clock in the morning. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait a minute. The Hunt for Red October is going to come on. Forget the fact that it's sitting over there on the DVD shelf, and I can watch yeah, I it. Jackie Brown too. Yeah, and I can watch it at any point in time. I can sleep now and watch it tomorrow. But no, whoa! It just showed up on TV. I'm gonna watch it. This move—that's what this movie is for me. It's so I, when you were talking about Jackie Brown, I get it. I get it. Whatever you're doing is gonna come to a halt, and you're gonna watch that film. I've. From the very first time I watched uh, Hunt for October, I thought this film was absolutely fascinating. I think that the script, uh, I haven't read the novel, but the story itself is really interesting. It's intriguing. It's fascinating. John McTiernan has shown that, hey, look, if there's somebody out there, if there's a director that can have something that feels tight and feels like it never stops, that's John McTiernan. And the Hunt for October... And all the scenes of dialogue, everything feels thrilling. Everything's of importance. There's no moment here that doesn't feel like it is absolutely vital to what's going to happen. Uh, and, yeah, as far as, you know, who, who my favorite Jack Ryan is, it is Alec Baldwin. The reason is because he's the guy who played it in Hunt for Red October. That's the reason. Was it the better one? 
it, he's the guy who did it in Hunt for Red October. Well, I think one of the things, though, when it comes to the cast of the Jack Ryan characters is I think a lot of the actors have decided the type of movie it is. Like Harrison Ford is a great Jack Ryan if you wanted more of an action movie Jack Ryan, because mm-hmm. that's sort of what he, he is. And Ben Affleck is, is sort of more of like a political thriller type thing. Hunt for Red October... It, it is, it's not on my list, but I would say it is definitely another movie that changed my perception of film. Because before seeing that movie, a thriller to me needed to have shootouts. It needed to have big action sequences uh, throughout the movie. You need to have this big rogue lead. And Hunt for Red October is an absolutely thrilling, grippy movie that both of us gave four stars to, and we were absolutely captivated by. But there isn't really a big action sequence. There is a time crunch. They are racing against time. There is this fear, but the movie itself comes out sort of at this pace where it's allowing the characters to develop. It's got this feeling, like there's always the tension, but it's very character-driven, it's very dialogue-driven. The tension is more coming from the words and the knowledge that we have and what gets established. Jack Ryan is not your typical action hero at all. He's more cerebral, and he, and again, he, he's, he used more of his diplomacy and the way he connects to people. And so it's a very different take on the thriller. But while watching it, when I was young, I realized this is gripping. Wow, so a thriller can be this too. And that's why this movie stood out so much for me. It's the exact same reason. Because um, a lot of these movies, there's something that teaches me about story telling and what it is or what my expectations of it were and the hunt for it october you're you're absolutely right came out at a time where a thriller sure it had dialogue and stuff but there were moments of like okay tom cruise is gonna run it doesn't matter if he's playing a lawyer i guarantee you at some point he's gonna be running uh a thriller had those moments that what in the 90s had such a great amount of thrillers but the Hunt for Red October, uh, for me, is the exact same thing. It's watching it and realizing, wow, this is as thrilling, if not more thrilling, than those other films. And I'd say actually say more thrilling. And there was like no action in it whatsoever. And that was a mind-blowing you know, moment to realize that you could get that same feeling without actually having it on the screen, which maybe is what made me appreciate other movies uh, like that, like in the horror realm of Blair Witch Project, the fact that you could make it feel gory, but you never see a thing. These films that make you think that the movie is one thing when really it's actually not. Yeah. And the Hover October opened my idea or opened my eyes to sort of the boardroom thriller. It made me more open to that. I mean, it made me more open to something like Spy Game, being willing to actually see something like that and then being pleasantly uh, surprised. And so it just shows that thriller and tension, if it's in the hands of like the right director, the right scriptwriter, the right performances, it doesn't really matter where you're set. You can have something thrilling that's stuck on a submarine. Yeah, uh, and a submarine, as we know, has no windows. So it's not like you can see outside and see what's going on. They're on the bridge and, well, it's a, it's a room surrounded by pipes and metal. That's it. 
Yeah, so no, it, it, to me, it definitely is a picture that sort of opened my eyes to kind of different uh, storytelling. You, well, uh, one thing I just want to say is I wanted to do, there's tons of coming-of-age stories on here that I sort of was trying to, that I want to put on that, again, 10 list is really small, and at one point I was thinking maybe something like, like a Goonies. I was definitely thinking Stand By Me because he had somebody who... Um, tell stories and Stephen King and it was perfect but in the end I realized and you look at my list and someone's thinking Christopher you don't have an animated movie on here like you need to have an animated movie you always love the animated so we are now coming to something that I would consider coming of age something that is super personal and something that I do connect with but it's also animated and this is another movie that right off the bet I knew had to be on this list. This Star Wars Back to the Future, boom. These were the first three. And I'm talking about Toy Story 3 because this, I was the type of kid who played with my toys. I was the type of kid that had a vivid imagination. I was the type of kid that would go to far off worlds and my toys were real talking people. And so I connect just with the aspect of toys sort of speaking and connecting but i also connected with the andy character who owned these toys because he would have these big vivid imaginations the movie starts with all the toys in this one world going into a western heist and it's revealed that it's andy that's playing with these toys and i mean mr potato mr potato head is playing with his piggy bank who's playing with woody who's playing with buzz lightyear and i connect with all that i was that type of kid he-Man could interact with Star Wars, who could interact with uh, the stuffy, like, let's make the whole world. And I, so the aspect of how Toy Story shows the great imagination, how Toy Story shows all the different types of play, I absolutely connected with all of that. This is also a movie, number three is about Woody coming to terms with Andy now going to university. And Andy himself is coming to but now he's got to let go of these toys. He's got to let go of his childhood. He's now going to the next stage of his life. He's got to decide, is he going to pass these toys on to the little girl? I connect with all those type of things. I still have this connection with my own childhood. I have that, still this affection for, for my toys. And so I really was hit with this idea of the coming of age and moving to that next aspect of adulthood. And how much do you keep from your childhood? How much do you keep with those things that you... Uh, you grew up with and you loved. And so I just felt that Toy Story 3 really embodied an internal struggle I had as a kid. And it really kind of felt like such a deep personal movie because I felt like I was like the Andy character. I had those type of things. I love the story of, of Woody realizing that maybe now it's time for a new owner and it's now time for him to move on. Like I thought all those aspects were just masterfully put together. Uh, also, I had to put a Pixar movie on here because everyone knows how much I love Pixar. Pixar makes my top 10 like every single year. This to me is one of the best Pixar movies. It definitely is the one that hits me the most personal. I just love its exploration of imagination. I love how it deals with uh, moving on to adulthood, how it deals with our memories, how it deals with that moving on to the next stage of your life. And these are all things that uh, mean a lot to me. This, this franchise is a really important one because I remember when all of a sudden you started seeing ads for movies that were animated and thinking, well, those aren't animated. They used computers to do that. 
And I was so skeptical about this, like insanely skeptical, because to me, I, I, I feel like I, I know better now, but it seemed like this must be lazy because they're just using computers. They're not drawing it. They're using computers. That's lazy. Um, and then when I finally saw Toy Story, it, it's sort of like this experience of, okay, well, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got to change the opinion on this one. I, I, <laughs> I totally have to change the opinion. Uh, I don't rem really remember much of Toy Story 2 at all, um, but I Remember when Toy Story 3 came out, there was a lot of people talking about it. There was a lot of people saying, like, this is a, you, you've got to see this film. And, you know, when I did, just, wow, this is phenomenal. This is, there's such a, t you know, touching moments that bring you close to tears. Or maybe to some people, Chris, were you brought to tears? Well, here's the crazy thing, okay? Toy Story 3 came out in 2010. I didn't have kids yet. Mm -hmm. I saw it in theaters, but I vividly remember crying. So I <laughs> So my crying did not happen just because I became a dad. <laughs> it is such a such a touching movie. And the thing is, with uh, with Toy Story 3 and the other Toy Story movies, it just each time one of those films came out, it's just this eye opening of oh how. I thought the last one looked phenomenal. How does this one look better? How is it that this looks even better than it did before? And also, how did they get this assembly of people together to make this film? Like it's obviously different. You don't need them on set at you know the same time or anything. You can with the voice recording, but still, just the amount of talent that they got to do these characters, and then Toy Story Four. It, these these movies. This is one of the. Uh, I, I, mean, I shouldn't say that. If I was supposed had to pick, okay, what's the best animated franchise as far as storytelling goes? I think it's Toy Story, and it edges out uh, How to Train Your Dragon. I, I think for me, it just sort of it's 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 right there because it's not only looking good, it's not only got interesting characters, but the storytelling is just phenomenal. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely the best uh, movie series, uh, animated series. But I was thinking of this. It may be, I mean, th there are some rivals. Like, you've got sort of like the original Star Wars trilogy, and you've got something like uh, the Lord of the Rings and stuff. But it's up there as maybe one of the most consistent and best movie series. Because I feel each one of the movies in Toy Story, at least one person think somewhere it's a classic and to me almost all four of them are fantastic movies this is my favorite but the other three aren't that far off no no they're they're terrific i actually didn't it wasn't long ago that i rewatched the first one and i had forgotten like it's one of those things where you rewatch it and you don't think oh this you know this was obviously written in this time period this obviously came out in the 90s it when I rewatched it, it was just sort of this experience of it's still as good as my memory is. Like it, it, it is as good, if not maybe even better than I remembered. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think all of them are really good at being personal. And what Pixar does really well is look at themes that even adults can understand and still connect to. 
And I think that's the strength of these franchises. I think it hits me a little bit harder because I really was that type of kid like Andy. So I look at that and I see myself on the screen. So that's why it has to be personal. But it, it talks about themes, just about sort of moving on, getting to that next stage. That I just think are, are universal, no matter your age. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree. It's... Uh... It is it, it and the thing is too it just connects us with childhood again. That's I think the thing that I love most. Like a lot of animated films that I love, kind of make me feel like a child again with the, with sort of the wonder of it all. But Toy Story really, since it is about children's toys, it really does hit that childhood nostalgia in a way that other films don't. And, I mean, I do have. Exceptions on my list, but you kind of nailed it. That obviously childhood nostalgia, nostalgia means something to me. When you look at my list, and we, I've got stuff like Wizard of Oz, Star Wars, Rays of the Lost Ark, and have Toy Story three on there. So that's clearly. I mean, I've got exceptions, Fargo, Jackie Brown, but I look at this list. It's like, yeah, I clearly have a part where I'm very much attached to nostalgia and imagination and childhood. Yeah, well, childhood and, uh, and imagination and all that fit perfectly into my next film in 1992's Unforgiven, uh, directed by Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yeah, you talk about charm and, and light-footedness. And yeah, exactly. Oh, they're on an adventure. Let's see what they get up to. Um, this movie is a film that if I was going, if at any point in time, even though, you know, your top 10 favorite films of all time, that kind of list can change day to day and moment to moment. This is a film that might be my number is probably my number one, regardless of when you would ask me, what's, you know, your favorite movies of all time. Uh, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven is on that list and it will never be off of that list. This is, uh, I, to, back when it came out, it looked interesting, but I felt like I was past cowboy movies at that time in 1992. I felt like I've moved on. I don't need to see a cowboy movie or anything like that. Uh, my parents had rented Unforgiven, and maybe I was out with some friends, but I came back in, and it was at the sequence where he rides into town at the end of the film, and I, my jaw was just dropped. The way the action played out was unlike anything I had ever seen. It wasn't graceful. It wasn't about cool choreography. It was brutal. And it, in that instant, even without any context as to the story whatsoever, it reshaped at that moment what Hollywood violence was and what you know, how desensitized we are to that idea of the shootout in the Western and all that. And I like, I have to see this movie. So the next day, cause it was a rental, didn't have to go back till later. I, I, you know, made sure I watched that thing from start to finish. And the, you know, what I saw was this masterclass of, of themes using, uh, themes, uh, characters, environment, the idea of legends and myth and all this stuff wrapped into this incredible picture that was insanely moving uh, and disturbing. And 
it was one of those movie experiences that therefore, you know, from that point on, it changed. Nothing would be the same after Unforgiven as far as, like I said, how you see Hollywood violence, the idea of what could be a, a, a theme in a movie, what could be uh, used as far as in-depth storytelling. Uh, this is one of the best films I think I've ever seen. It's one that, you know, sometimes we have these movies in our head that we hold up as great and we say, oh, I remember this element to it and, and, and this and this. And then when we rewatch it, it feels like maybe the memories we had overshadowed what it was. And it's still great, but it's not what we held it up as. Every single time I've returned to this film, every time, it has destroyed those memories and presented itself as even better than the last time I watched it. This is easily one of the most influential movies on me as an individual ever, but also, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest sto uh, examples of story time, or story time, storytelling, <laughs> one of the greatest examples of story time that Hollywood has come out with. Uh, this this movie, like I said, each time I see it, it blows me away more and more than the previous time. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for including Unforgiven on your list and including a Western. Those are two things I wanted on my list and it missed it. I was hoping desperately you would put it on your list and you did. I think that when I was in my teens, if someone asked me if I liked Westerns, I probably was said no. I'd be like, oh, it's another period. I'm not really interested in it. And I'm not sure what got me to see Unforgiven. That part I don't quite remember. I don't think it was rented by my parents, but somehow I got a copy of it. I watched it and I instantly was like, this is a classic. This is one of the best movies I have ever seen. And it really opened my eyes of what a Western is. Because I realized that a lot of what Unforgiven is doing are long-standing themes in westerns and it has especially when we revisit it for the podcast it really made me realize that i actually love westerns when they're done really well like you know, like the good the bad and the ugly is another movie that would probably make at least my like 50 favorite movies of all time maybe not top 10 but it, but it's on there i just love how the westerns or all these different things and unforgiven though does it masterfully it maybe does it the best i love this idea of the notion of like the myth and the legend and unforgiven's idea that you have the one guy who's talking about he's the best gunslinger ever and he's all hyped up and then he goes into town and becomes something more than a drunk and gets embarrassed right away and so this movie's playing on this idea of how we build people up and and the legend the myth of them and do they face that reality and then gene hackman himself is building up a legend about himself and he starts believing himself but then you've got old clint eastwood uh william muddy right mm -hmm. Monday? money and, yeah. and he's got this dark history and he was this powerful guy but he downplays it he doesn't really want people to necessarily know that legend about him and then when you first see him he can't even get on a horse and he looks pathetic but as the film builds you get to be able to see that old legend coming back and you realize he's not someone to mess with i i, I think the movie takes that theme and that idea of legend 
childhood it just does it so masterfully and so captivating and i would put this as another movie that really encouraged my own ways of storytelling and how you can mesh a great story but still sort of put in these themes and, and just the importance of kind of playing with the legends and the myths and the talk i just i find that stuff so fascinating and i don't know if any other movie has played with it as well as forgiven has yeah and then i mean the the that which I, I completely agree. I don't think any movie has done it as good as uh, Unforgiven. Uh, the idea that no matter how horrific the stories of William Money's uh, acts are, we find out that it's actually worse. And what I—that's <laughs> the part I love. Yeah, and what what is so great about that is I think it's really. You know, Eastwood and uh, scriptwriter, scriptwriter David Webb Peoples, what they're saying is these legendary gunslingers, horrible. Should they be heroes? Like William Money, we see him turn into a horrible person. And yes, he does justice by his eyes, but from his perspective, he does justice. But he's a, hor like, he's a horrible individual, he's a monster. Just uh, and as we see that shape, because at the beginning there's something about he's holding on to good. He's trying to hold on to righteousness and 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 being proper and being respectful. And then as we see him turn into the legend, he's a monster. And I love that idea that you know maybe the the western we 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 idolize these these wild west heroes and we call them heroes. Were they really just monsters that we've then turned to idolize? Yeah, that, that, that's a that's great insight. I really like that uh, because at the end, and it almost plays with the action here in some ways. Because at the end, when you're talking about he's going through town, it is this chilling moment. It is like it goes up your spine. It's this exciting moment. Like, oh, this is the real. Like, he's here now. He's going to take names. But you're right where sometimes these guys that we put up as these heroes and it seems like this exciting moment and yes he's the one that we've been invested in so we're happy with what he does but you're right he's a monster and he's sadistic he he absolutely is and he before he leaves town if anyone takes a shot at me i'm gonna kill you and i'm gonna kill your family i'm gonna kill your kids i'm gonna kill anyone you've ever talked to and a lot of times people say those things in movies uh, you know, like a training day, Denzel Washington characters, the amount of bark that dog had. And when it turns out he was kind of toothless near the end with, uh, with William money in, in unforgiven you, by that point in the movie, you realize, no, he will shoot your kid point blank. If you do something against him, he will shoot your wife. He will do whatever he says he's going to do. You're right, and that's the other aspect of the movie. The interesting aspects you think at the beginning when sometimes he looks um, like weak and sort of and and sort of like can't get on the horse and, and, and looks comical. You realize that part of that is almost grasping because he doesn't want any part of his past, and so this good version of him is wrestling throughout the movie, and then at the end, when he becomes this full beast, you still see the inner turmoil, because how the movie ends, there's still this idea that I became that, but I never want to be that again. Yeah, again. Uh, absolutely, and I think that's that's the important part of the film, is the fact that he wants to return to what he was, he didn't like what he was, uh, you know, his, his wife kind of helped him see what he was, 
Um, it's just the circumstance he put him in, he put himself in, brought him back to that. Now, I know what everyone's thinking now. You're saying, Christopher, you did the animated movie. Got it. Believe it. That's part of you. You have to do an animated movie. But now you're thinking, I'm looking at your list, and there is no horror on your list. There's no creature feature on your list. What's going on, Christopher? Don't be like 2013 <laughs> when you hated horror. We want the old Christopher back. We want the one who, you know, loves creature features and horror. And don't you worry. I knew I needed to put one on, but I had a hard time figuring out what it would be. At one point, it was like, oh, am I going to put Gremlins on here because of what it meant to me as a kid? Am I going to put on Halloween, which is the first slack? that I ever saw. I even started thinking Scream. Then all of a sudden I realized I could combine horror with the creature feature. And I put it together and I create what is one of my all-time favorite movies, but I think is a masterpiece in which I've talked about on the show many times and it allows me to put on one of my favorite directors, John Carpenter. I get to put on The Thing, which to me is such a powerful moment and for me for cinema one because of it the atmosphere of this picture i saw it pretty young and i remember it creeping me out and i didn't even want to have our dog anymore because i saw what dogs <laughs> could do and i was thinking maybe we should take it back dad like this is a movie that traumatized me on that level but this was also a movie that early on i realized the amazingness of special effects and creature design and we've talked about this a few weeks ago like yeah you could say okay that doesn't look realistic and maybe the special effects don't age well but it still looks artful it's still creative what they do with that chest opening up and and the teeth coming out with that creature that comes from the guy like it is it still just shows like it's a masterwork it looks like a piece of art still today it's such incredible creature design that to me shows that sometimes practical effects just age so much better there's that aspect and yeah it's kind of gory and it's violent but in the same way it's this just masterfully constructed creature that's kind of beautiful beautiful gore is kind of how i put it and i just i also love that idea we talked before with sort of like suspiria where you're wondering is this real or not real what I like about The Thing is how it plays against, it's kind of that closed room movie where it plays against distrust. Who do you believe? Who's the creature and who is real person? And I think that movie really, The Thing really pulls that off amazing, this idea of doubting. Because even as a viewer, you're wondering, is that guy an alien or is he good? Who, like, it's not just the characters who are wondering, we're wondering that. And so it builds attention and you're completely worried for these people and you get completely immersed and i love closed room movies i love movies where you have to doubt the characters i love movies with twists and turns and there's been many that came after the thing but i think the thing is one of the best at playing that i think it does a great job with the closed room i think it does a great job of building up these characters it makes you care it makes you not want them to become aliens they're not just tomato cans they're not just there to be disposed of you want them to get through I think Kurt Russell is amazing in the lead role, a character that you care about. I love the final scene, and I love how they end it, and you don't really know who is who and what's going on. I love the doubt you have. 
I think this is just a masterful movie. This is yet again a movie that would be somewhere on one of my all-time favorite movies. But I would also say it's really influential. It just it, it gave me a different eye in special effects. It gave me a different eye of what you could do with horror. It could be give me a different eye of sort of tension and how horror is not just a monster; it's the humans. Because this movie, it's about the humans. It's about the characters. It's about the mistrust. Even the humans are dangerous in this. Because if they think you're a creature, they may kill you. And so that's the thing that really taught me a lot about horror. Is it's not just, The scariest part is often not the monster. It's the people and what's inside us. I'm really glad you put this on your list. I, this, this was on my list. And I, last night I had to finally bump it off. Um, I bump things for this movie. Yeah, this, this movie, just wow. What, a, what an experience. Because I have such respect, regardless of people, if they look at the special effects and say, wow, that doesn't hold up, doesn't matter. I've got so much respect for what they did. Uh, the, 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 the concept, visually, how the execution worked, I have just way too much respect for. I, th I think it's just phenomenal. This story is that idea of suspicion is the deadly force. Yeah, the alien is, is out there, but it is the suspicion that feels the most dangerous in this movie. And it is claustrophobic. It feels like there's no hope. Uh, it is really one of those movies that when I saw it for the first time, which was within the last 10 years, was just, I don't know, this this element of wow over what they did uh, what carpenter did with this claustrophobic idea just being you know you couldn't get at any more remote than antarctica and it's uh it's just an absolutely terrifying film and yeah if if i was going to point to you know what are those horrors that uh really really show an example of who i am the thing is a movie that easily sums up that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all that. And I would uh, definitely say that, like you said, that the special effects to me, they do hold up because they're practical and they still look good. But what I love about this movie is the idea that the fears are not just the creature. It's the humans. It's the claustrophobia. It's the environment. Who wants to be in Antarctica? It's all these other things, and that's sort of a big thing I learned about horror, is there's more than just the one thing. There's many things to be scared about, and they pulled that off. And like you said, like, the setting, like, how original was that? That's How often do you use something like that? And it really ups the claustrophobia. You're on, like, the most desolate place in the world. Yeah, exactly. There's no, uh, I'll go outside and get some firewood. There's none of that. There's no wood. There's nothing. <laughs> you can't, you can't. It, as terrified as you are of this alien, you can't just leave your location. There is no other option. And I don't know how long this movie is. I can't remember. But I just know it flies by. It feels 90 minutes. I think it's probably one of the best-paced uh, horror movies I've ever seen. It really is. It's uh, it's an hour 49, to be exact. Uh, but yeah, it the the way that the time moves on, moves through here is is great i love when at the very beginning when they they come uh when they show up at the uh sort of the other site can't remember which country it was anyways 
Is, is that, it Norway? I, th I think so. Yeah. Anyways, the there's nothing that's flat out saying red flag to the viewer, but it's the subtleties that are saying red flag. Something here wasn't right. Something was wrong. Something was very wrong over here, and you need to you need to be afraid. Well, the, the cool thing what they do though is they play off your expectations because you see these guys who are chasing a dog. And I mean, every or a lot of people love dogs. You're like, who are these beasts? Why are they going after this dog? And so you're kind of rooting for the dog. And then they protect the dog. It gets into the station, and you realize, oh wait, this thing I love is evil. Yeah, yeah, it it really is. It's 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 this. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think I got the. I think I remembered the beginning of the movie wrong. Because yeah, it shows that for some reason I thought that the beginning was different. So I apologize. My memory is not always the best. Well, it's a great movie, no matter how you remember. No matter exactly. I remember that it's cool, and it's got Wilfred Brimley in it. It does, and it's another one where at one point he plays a pretty scary person. He really does. He does a great performance, and that's another thing with this film is the performances from Wilfred Brimley and Kurt Russell to uh, to Keith David, who's phenomenal as well. He's now, always Keith David's great. It's one of his best, almost as good as his performance in They Live. Yeah, and, and now, now all of a sudden it's got me thinking, wait, how is Platoon not on my list? <laughs> I didn't even think of Platoon until we said Keith David's name. Uh, I, I didn't think of Platoon either, but now that you've mentioned it, I'm, I question. Ten is not enough. Ten is not... We just did too big of a time period. Ten is not enough. Ten is a horrible thing. Uh if you're listening to the list so far and you're like, Scott, you're talking about movies that show who you are. How come there's not a, been a bad movie on your list so far? Because you like that. I have been wondering that. Okay. Well, this was the hard, this is one of the harder parts. Cause I, I needed to pick one, right? One movie. And there are some amazing films out there. Uh, and the reason why I picked the one and this, okay, this is why I picked this one. Because a lot of the movies out there that are so bad they're good, you can sum up every fun moment in a, basically you see a YouTube video that, that has every great moment from that film and it's like two minutes long. So a lot of these movies you're just watching waiting for that next minute or that next moment that's really fun or crazy or whatever. And I picked the movie that you can watch those videos. You can watch those YouTube videos showing the moments of The Room. But when you sit down and watch The Room, you're mortified at the fact that every single moment in this film, every single word that's said, every single action, every single character is as bad as the stuff you've seen on those YouTube videos. There is no waiting around for that next moment because every moment in this film is that next moment yes it's got the classic parts that are summed up so well in youtube videos but there is never a point in this film where you're just not like oh my gosh how, how what what happened here why did they shoot this as a movie there's never never downtime you are always just baffled that this thing ever got made uh yeah it is just sort of the epitome of those type of films, which is why I chose it because it, there's something loving about it. Someone was trying real hard. Tommy was, was trying really hard here and he failed and I'm still getting joy out of that. 
And yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go. No, I'm done. Well, no. Well, I was just gonna say that, like, I don't know, like, a hundred percent how accurate the initial screening in the disaster artist is to the initial screening that the room had. But to me, that's really perfectly encapsulates things here. Where Tommy Wiseau went in, this was his heart. This was his big serious drama. And people are connecting to it and they're laughing at it and they're having a blast. But you can see him in some ways crumbling because it's not what he envisioned. His movie is iconic, it's memorable, it's what he wanted. Or, I mean, like, it's iconic and memorable, which is what he wanted, but not the way that he wanted it. And I feel like the Zatz artist really kind of captures that he's trying to do this earnest thing, and it's still beautiful because he put so much effort into it, and he's trying to do this great thing. But is there a more misguided movie in history? (laughs) Plan 9 from Outer Space, which, I mean, when you're talking about the worst movies of all time, uh, Plan 9 is, is, it's right up there as well. I went with the room. Easily, I could see anyone saying Plan Nine is is equally as misguided as this one. They're both just there's something to watch. I I, I lost a bet with myself because um, I was actually predicting Battlefield Earth on your list. It, it was there was thoughts of Battlefield Earth. There was thoughts of it. Yeah, no, the, the room's something special. My favorite is the fact that uh, he has sex with her belly button. Multiple times, they show the same. They show the same sex sequence. I think three times in that film. Uh, also, um, what they don't seem to understand is, I guess Tommy Wiseau wanted it to seem like their apartment was the cool hangout place. So there's this teenage kid that swings by all the time. Well, the teenage kid follows them up to their bedroom. The teenage kids hanging. They're laying on the bed. It's just like no. No, this, I don't care if you want it to be the cool hang. This is wrong. This is, Tommy, this has gone too far. That's why it's an incredibly misguided movie. And it's one of those things that I like better because it's played so straight. He does put so much effort into it. So it's hard not to get some of the affection. It's kind of like Soul Tangler, which is not a good movie, but I still had a hard time hating it because you could feel the affection of the director. Yes, yeah, and that's the key. It's there's because there's bad movies where nobody cares, and they're just bad movies. There's not they're not entertaining. They may have a moment here or there. It's when people are in it to win it, right? It's it's I, that's what makes moments of the tr- of, of Troll Two work because like the father, he thinks he's in like a legit movie. This is this is important. What he's doing. Is you don't imp- piss on hospitality. That's <laughs> Absolutely. And he's giving it his all. And that's when this works. That's when these these movies work is when people are really trying and it just doesn't work out. And I hate the idea of laughing at failure. But my gosh, like I I'm sure I could come up with stuff that I am positive is just the best thing the world's ever seen. And it could be crappy. And as long as people are entertained by it, in one way or another, maybe it wasn't a huge loss. And I think that's why 
I, I think the Disaster Artist is such a great companion piece because I feel that James Franco making that movie, he was making it with a lot of affection for the room. I think he likes the room a lot. And I feel that the Disaster Artist isn't mocking the room. It's almost uh, encouraging creativity and people taking chances. And even if it's not going to be great, you go outside your talent, you go for it anyways. And it's the idea that maybe Tommy Wiseau didn't make what he wanted, but he still made a movie that's memorable and iconic and it's still being talked about today. And so in some ways he still won. And that's why I think the disaster artist is a great piece with it because it shows you that we're not necessarily being cruel and making fun of them. We're, we're kind of celebrating that idea of you're still trying, even if your talent's not there. Yeah. It feels like, Hey, let's celebrate these beautifully eccentric people. Let's, let's, let's celebrate that. And, and, um, yeah, to me, it's, it's a film, it, as far as like, what are the worst bad movies or the, the most entertaining bad movies out there? Uh, oh my gosh. Yeah, this is, we're, we're standing on the doorstep of it. And the big, the big question is, do you want to open the door or not? Because, um, it's watching bad movies. It, you gotta be in the right mindset for them. Otherwise they can be horrible. All right. My next. Number nine is once again, I needed to get a certain director on here because he was such an influence on me. I knew Martin Scorsese needed a movie on my list, just like I knew John Carpenter did. So I went with the thing. What do I do with Martin Scorsese? I don't know if this is my favorite Martin Scorsese movie, but I think it's one that dug the deepest to me. And I think it's the first Martin Scorsese movie I ever saw. So it's what got me into him. So that's why I put Taxi Driver on my list because I, I also feel that my list is largely feel-good movies and they're adventure movies and I needed a movie on here that was dark and a movie on here that had a complicated character because I love sort of the anti-hero movies. I like those movies when it works, where you have unlikable characters but you still are drawn to them. I like tragedies. I like those dark pictures. And so I felt like I needed to pick one. And I think Martin Scorsese made maybe the best movie of this genre, this idea of you following an unlikable character, following this dark loner, following someone who's misguided, someone who thinks he is a hero, someone who thinks he's great, but he's misguided and he's dark and he's sick. It also has a very ambiguous ending. People can reinterpret it. Did he become the hero in the end or did he die? Is everything else a hallucination? And I love the fact that it's left ambiguous. There's many different interpretations, similar to King of Comedy, which is another one I thought about putting on this list, but I decided let's go with the one that got me hooked on Scorsese. Let's go on one that is the dark character and it's sort of that dark atmosphere just because of the fact that I feel that is a type of movie that I am drawn to and when it's done well is one of my favorites and so I had to find some film that kind of embodied that, that dark aspect. I love the adventures, I love the feel-good movies, but sometimes you need to wallow a little bit in the darkness. You need to see that other side and figure out why you don't want to go there and what can happen when you have a miss. Uh, guided feeling of what's heroic. I think you need these type of things to sort of redirect us and realize where to find the light, where to be pure, and not to be these people. And I think Scorsese does that really well. I think that's basically been his filmography. It's showing people that he clearly doesn't think 
are good, but he wants to show us, be careful. Look what can happen if you're not safe. I think he does that with Wolf of Wall Street. I think he does that with Goodfellas. I think he does that with Casino. But Taxi Driver sort of, it didn't necessarily get him on that path because Mean Street came before. But this is one of his classics. This is one of his best movies. And like I said, it introduced me to who's one of my all-time favorite directors. This is a great movie. It sounds like you picked it for the same reason I picked Unforgiven. I wanted to show something that, that had that darker element, that had the complicated characters, that, that looks at themes from a much more, I guess, intense way. Uh, and, I mean, you picked a great one. It's almost... The problem with Scorsese is it's like, well, which one do, do you choose out of... Out of all of these, which which one? And I, I think you landed on a, uh, on a brilliant pick. Yeah, because I wasn't sure. I was like, do I pick my favorite of his movies? And I felt like, but I felt like this one also fit some other holes that I had in what I wanted to pick something that embodied me, which, like I said, was kind of that darkness, that complicated stuff. A movie that doesn't necessarily feel good, but uh, makes me think. And it's a movie I've revisited several times. Like, it is definitely... A movie I like a lot. I, I I don't know if it's gonna. It would like it would definitely be a top fifty movie for me. I think, but I, I don't think it's a top ten movie. But uh, it's definitely a memorable movie. This uh, this film I saw for the first time when I was in college, and I had bought the VHS at Cash Converters, and sat down to watch it, and it was not at all what I expected. I actually don't know what I expected, and I just remember thinking wow this is different but in a good way it was so even so the movie was or it came out in 76 i saw it in probably 2000 and the fact that it felt different even though i was you know so many years after it came out and it felt incredibly different that, that says something because how much more different would have felt at the time when, when it, it came out. There was something about this story that wasn't engaged in set pieces, even though it felt like it was dealing with something big and troubling. It, I, I mean, the, the main... The, 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 if we call it action sequence at the end, is so different. And like I said, even in two, the year 2000... 24 years after this film came out, it was, you know, watching it thinking, wow, I've never, ever seen anything even close to this before. I've never seen anything like this. And that movie still sort of burns in my mind as something that is so distinct, so unique. Uh, it is perfectly directed, perfectly acted. And just as far as looking at this idea, and once again, similar to Unforgiven, the idea of what a hero is and what society considers to be a hero, it, that person could be a monster. It's just how, how it's viewed. Yeah, I know, exactly. It's very uh, an Unforgiven-like ending, because what I like about it is it, that big final sequence, it almost seems like this heroic thing. He's coming to save the girl. But while you watch it, what he does and how he behaves and how it all comes together, it's kind of repulsive. And so it's jarring. The first time I saw it, I was like, this isn't the big action climax. Like, it's kind of gross what he's doing. Absolutely. That's the thing, right? It's You're just caught off guard because Hollywood has taught you one thing. Hey, this person you're following... 
they're gonna be they're gonna be great. They're gonna do the right thing. And yeah, if if we're looking at what he's doing as the right thing, it doesn't feel right with how it's being pulled off. Yeah, and, and like you, I think this was one of the first times that I saw sort of a non-hero in the lead role. I thought there was going to be a redemption arc. I thought he'd get things together. And first time I watched it, the movie ends. I was like, oh, he he didn't get better. Like mm-hmm. I was just watching this horrible character. And he stayed horrible, which to me, like I, I'm sure there was movies before that were like that, but this was the first time I really saw, like you, something like this. Like this really opened my eyes to. Oh, they have movies like this where not everything's happily wrapped up in the end. Yeah, this was a Taxi Driver was just this massive game changer uh, for me in, in that regard. It just, I mean, everything that I had expected of movies or thought that movies should be, especially around that idea of an unlikable character, it you sort of get taught that there's going to be a redemption arc, right? That that there's there's something's going to happen they're going to make a decision at the end that we're going to you know cheer or but it doesn't happen and we're left with this at least i was left with a horrible feeling of i don't after all this i don't like travis bickle yeah no, i was left with a horrible feeling uh what, what's what's crazy though is i think the character thinks he redeemed himself and the media puts him as this hero but you, we see the truth and yeah that type of stuff was uh, thoughtfulness and deepness that I wasn't used to a movie until I saw that one. And then my eyes were open, like, oh, Scorsese does this all the time. And so that was big. Another thing this movie opened my eyes to is I think it was one of the first times where I saw that the city can amplify the themes and amplify the story and amplify the mood. The stuff he does with New York and the mist coming off the, the taxi, that really changed how I saw how filmmaking could be done. Yeah, the, I think this film had some amazing cinematography, and maybe that's one thing that people don't think naturally or just think at all when we think of Taxi Driver, but the cinematography was really good because the city was a character and the people you know, just living and toiling about in the city, uh, they were all affected by it. And I also learned that on a first date, you don't take a girl to a porn theater. We learned that, yes. Absolutely. I remember watching that thinking, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, I was even aware. Yeah. Just like, no, no, this isn't right. You don't, you don't do this. And maybe part of me thought, well, maybe this was, you know, as the scene started happening, well, maybe this was a different time and that's what people did. But then you quickly realize, no, no, nobody does that. No matter what time, uh, no, what, no matter what time period it happens and you, nobody does that. That, that, that apparently was not the movies he was expecting. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now we're down to my my final one. My two th- This one came out in 2015. And actually, even though it's last on the list, this may actually be one of the biggest on the list. Because to me, this sums up everything that could be good about a big-budget blockbuster. This sums up everything that could be great about a popcorn-munching thrill ride this shows to me that you don't need tons and tons and tons of dialogue to have character development to have themes you you can actually have what seems very simplistic you got it uh you can have something that seems very very simplistic but is still actually chock full of of ideas and characters and and like i said themes and this is george miller's return to mad max mad max fury road which 
to me is an absolute work of art of a film. Yes, break it down. What is the what what's the the plot? Well, there's a car chase. And that's it. <laughs> there is a car chase that happens and that is the entirety of the movie. However, it is the voyage, it is the, the it is still the journey and the characters that we have become important in different ways and we learn about them in different ways. This movie shows you know, when, when around this time, Hollywood was starting to slowly make a return to practical effects. There were people out there. I remember when J.J. Um, uh, 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 Abrams, uh, a, a shot was leaked from, I think, the set of Star Wars. And we saw, and the big scoop basically was, they've built stuff. It's pra There's some practicality to what's going on. And... <laughs> to people who weren't, you know, remembering the time or paying attention to the time, oddly enough, the fact that someone was building a set was newsworthy because so much stuff, you know, props and sets and all that were getting done by CGI. And now all of a sudden people were returning to it. And I think none bigger and better than George Miller and Mad Max Fury Road, where you have, you know, the idea of the Mad Max post-apocalyptic vehicles they are done up and they're done up on steroids. They, they are the craziest looking things, but every single one of them was created, not only created, but was physically running was the shots of them moving through the desert was them getting driven through the desert. All these props were made. They were functional. You know, there were explosions that happened that yes, there were, there were special effects that edited out safety things and, and, and you know, different aspects people jumping off vehicles the harnesses were edited or you know cgi took those out but everything that happened here was done practically the people driving at speed through the desert on these big poles swinging back and forth that happened every single thing you saw there happened except for when they're in the big storm and vehicles are getting picked up off the road and swirled around that didn't happen but um, to me, it was just this reminder of how a movie could be art by spending the time to do those things. The shots of the interiors of the vehicle, there's some ornate metal work that's done in them that I don't know how long that would have taken. And a lot of films would have just been like, ah, you know, just we'll, we'll have the inside of these vehicles kind of drab or maybe we'll paint stuff on. But no, this stuff is all legitimately done and the, the talent and the craft work behind all of that to me is is just phenomenal and mind-blowing and it ultimately shows what can happen when you put that much effort into the environment that much effort into the props similar to things like wizard of oz uh star wars aliens these movies we talk about that build these worlds it's because the efforts put in there it's because the people making it think okay what would this actually look like what would this feel like and Mad Max Fury Road paid attention to that. As well, we have this great story with Tom Hardy as, as Max, Charlie Snurin, as uh, Furiosa. And it is this simple story of, uh, I don't know, of hope. The hope's the biggest element of it, but also this idea as well of redemption and it all plays out through a singular car chase. It is a beautifully shot movie. Like I said, I think this movie is a work of art. 
and it shows that popcorn munchers can be thoughtful as well as engaging. If you want to talk about this movie sort of being this work of art or proof of how innovative it was, I mean, in I don't know if it still happened now because now they seem to be obsessed with just independent movies. But in 2015, Mad Max Fury Road got enough critical acclaim, enough buzz behind it that it actually got nominated for Best Picture. And there isn't a lot of popcorn munchers that get nominated for Best Picture. There has been sometimes in the past, but in the last decade, I would say they've they pulled away from that. It's very rare. Yet during a period where they weren't doing that very often. Mad Max got a claim. Maybe they'll give it to someone like Avatar that's the biggest box office hit. Mad Max wasn't, and it got a claim. And I think it's because of the critical acclaim, but just because it was something so unique. Maybe the story was straightforward, and the story itself seemed like, okay, you can describe it in one word, high concept, so it's not really that innovative but the the technical spec the special effects and when i say special effects i mean practical special effects but they're still special effects and just the way that they created this living uh, breathing world the fact that it's a straightforward action movie but you and i could probably list like six or seven different themes like it is deceptively uh deep it's a deceptively complex movie this theme has a lot of things going on i mentioned how i love like fargo and jackie brown because it has strong female characters this movie Furiosa, to me she's the star over mad max she's an incredibly strong character and i feel like uh one of the big subtexts of this film is sort of the way we treat females, females as a commodity, and I feel it's a feminist power picture, but one that even, you know, guys who aren't necessarily into feminism would love because it's also just a throw-down action picture. It, it, it really is, and, uh, <coughs> excuse me, it has so much of that to it that, um... It, it, it's not some sort of heavy-handed feminism to it. it. It is, you know, you watch the movie, you don't even pay attention to that sort of thing, but it's there. It's, it, it's thick with it. Uh, and we get characters like uh, Charlize Theron's character, uh, Riley Keough in there, which this was, uh, I think, probably the first time I saw her in a film. And now she just seems to be in absolutely everything uh, after that film. So, yeah, actually, that was, looking at Wikipedia, that was the very first thing I ever would have seen her in. Yeah, and it was a, it was a great uh, breakout role. I mean, I would say they, they, they cast some very talented people to sort of be the, the girls. And I think another thing, what they pulled off well is, even though I wouldn't say all of them have kind of equal billing, each of them do have a bit of a personality in a moment. That, that's a lot of characters to juggle. Yes. Yeah. It, and then that's the, the interesting thing about this film is because there's still so little dialogue and you have a number of different characters and something's happening with each character. It's pretty interesting storytelling that they're able to pull all that off. Yeah, no, it is. The, they do a great job of, as I said, juggling all the characters. They, they do a good job of putting in themes. But what a good movie should do, because you can watch this movie without any of those themes or any of that political part and just enjoy it as it is. I think sort of both sides of the political spectrum can enjoy this movie. I don't think it as smashing in your face that you feel like, oh, I've been preaching to female power. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's a movie that I think you you can watch and you don't feel because some movies you definitely feel like ah oh, there's an agenda here and it never feels like that. Yeah, and Zoe Kravitz, which uh, uh, she she plays one of the girls, she does a good performance. Rosie Huntington, Whitley, more interested in this than Transformers. <laughs> Come on, Transformers is interesting. Is that your last movie? Is Transformers your final? Oh well. Well, actually, my last movie is a sci-fi. Well, there you go. Transformers. Transformers. Uh, well, again, my list was really trying to tick all the boxes. I tried to get as many sort of genres and stuff that was really influence, influential to me. And so I wanted something that was a bit more independent. And I felt like this list would be dishonest if I didn't sort of have a weird movie. Like a movie you had to rewatch a few times to understand, sort of an art house picture. And I mean, we know how great of an art house picture Transformers is. But no, it's not Transformers. <laughs> what I went with, though, was sort of that weird, quirky movie, but one that I felt absolutely captivating. And it's also an outsider picture, which is something that you can see my list I really connect to. I'm talking about the Scarlett Johansson starring Under the Skin, which. I absolutely loved the first time I saw it. Then I rewatched it. It made my best of the year list that year. And it's a movie that has grown for me over the years. I've loved it more and more because you can kind of see that it is in some ways surreal. And in some ways, like I said, it's art house and it's got these allegories and stuff. But just as a movie, it's still fascinating. Seeing this alien that's trapped on this world and is luring men into this house and then killing them. It's, it's weird and what's going on here. But then you see this alien that just seems lost and not fitting into this world. And she's wondering if she still wants to do this. And she's trying to find a way to, to connect with the world. I found all that really fascinating. And sort of like that, Max, it does it without a lot of dialogue. It, it does it without really holding your hand. But while you watch it, you kind of can really figure it out. Like, there is a plot here. But at the same time, it's about the visuals. It's about this representation. You can't necessarily take it all sort of straightforward. You know that there's some subtext in here. And when it's done right, I love those kind of movies. Those movies really connect to me and resonate with me. I like the poetic nature to it. I like the fact it challenges me. We've also seen the movies of what happens when it's really bad, but if you want to find out why do I like sort of surreal pictures, why do I like um, kind of the, the art house stuff, the, the, the stuff that's not necessarily straightforward and challenging, I think Under the Skin is the best example. It's probably my favorite of that type of movie, and so for that reason, I felt like I needed to put it on here. I think it represents me really well. I'm glad you put this on here, because it I believe we saw this in 2014. That's when it came yes. out. Uh, and and that year was really good for, um, I think, two sci-fi feeling horrors, that and Ex Machina. And, and uh, they... It's, it's neat that they both came around, out around the same time because I, I, I feel that they've got some similarities in, in how the stories go. And that Ex Machina, that almost made my list. So... The fact that you got this art house feeling, sci-fi that's psychological, I, I love it. I think that, I mean, that shows something about both who both of us are, and you know, I didn't get one on the list, but it's a very important 
style of film for for us or you know movies that that are trying uh trying hard like uh the endless uh, you know these these different sci-fi feeling movies that are trying to reach and push things in different boundaries and they're not being pretentious not you know this isn't paris is us or or tree of blood or anything like that these are movies like under the skin there's never a point in time where i feel like it's just being you know self-indulgent i never felt like it was just trying to be vague for vague sake i never thought at one moment oh this is just the 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 director is just being a, a pretentious jerk at this point Never felt any of that. It's a very compelling movie. It feels like all those stuff that maybe even if I don't understand how the, how it goes, it still felt like it fit. Nothing felt like it was just put in for the sake of being different or being, uh, you know, quirk, uh, not quirky. Quirky is a bad word to use, but nothing felt like it was just put in for that aspect of feeling art house. And uh, this the the director Jonathan Glazer like. To see Under the Skin and to see Sexy Beast, there's no way I would ever say that this is the same guy. I would never say that this is the same director, and yet it was, and both movies are just so captivating. And I think the fact that you know that this is the director that gave you Sexy Beast, I think, to me, is one of the reasons why I know this isn't necessarily pretentious and why he's not just trying to confound and confuse i feel there is very clear things he's trying to say everything in there is a reason he has a story to tell and that he went this direction because i think he want he had something deeply personal and this is the best way for him to say it i think he also wanted to do a callback to some maybe 1970s sci-fi the the kind of sci-fi that was more intellectual and thoughtful the pre-star wars kind of sci-fi and i think he pulls that off really well i think he pulls off that atmosphere and i i agree with you 100 i don't think there is anything pretentious here i don't think there's anything here that is uh purposely trying to misdirect you i think it's the same thing as sort of like lighthouse same idea where you're not going to get everything but there is things there it may be obscured it may be hidden but over time when you rewatch it you're going to get something in every viewing and you're going to slowly you're going to slowly figure it out and i did not get everything that underskin was saying but i was 100 percent okay with it because i was captivating when i saw it and i know i'll be rewarded every time i rewatch it and that's the important thing with with movies like that that are that are that maybe have those moments that you don't understand it's that it's like this idea that if I rewatch it, I might understand it. And if you can do that, if you can put the pieces together, that means that there was actually a puzzle to begin with. It's not just someone saying, hey, look, look how random these things are. And, and there must be some sort of connection to them. But it, yeah. it, it, uh, it works really well. Sorry, I smacked my microphone a moment ago. So I do apologize for how loud that would have been. Well, you're just adding to like the 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 sound. You're trying to set the mood for under skin with the with the with the uh, score they had. Wow. <laughs> uh, no, that's a great pick to finish us off. Now I'm gonna go through my list of ten, uh, just to su- or, yeah, just to say them again. This hardest list we've ever done. I'm not gonna lie, absolutely the hardest list, but super fun to do. Uh, Wizard of Oz, first movie, just, it's, what an adventure, fantasy, uh, great music, 
Batman the movie, it is the theater of the absurd. And it's, it walks the line perfectly where you could think that it's just poorly made cinema, where actually it's brilliantly made, at least I believe. Then 1977 Suspiria, a, a, a movie that captures a lot of what I think a good horror could be as far as um, using different elements of storytelling, having things visceral, but still having things unexplained. Rambo First Blood Part 2, huh, well, it hits the spot. That's what I'll say. <laughs> it hits the spot. Uh, aliens, just this absolutely masterful blending of so many genres of, of action and sci-fi. Uh, the set design and, and all that stuff is just beyond amazing. Creates a, a wonderful world. Hunt for Red October, uh, a espionage thriller that is, you know, definitely taught me that you don't need to have car chases or action sequences to be thrilling. You can have it just be dialogue. Then 1992's Un uh, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Yeah, uh, since the moment I saw it, it's one of my favorite movies of all time, and every viewing reinforces that. Then it's The Big Lebowski from the Coen brothers. Uh, it's, I don't think it's a surprise or shock that both of us have a Coen Brothers film on our list. Uh, this one is just the, the type of comedy was something I'd never seen before when I first witnessed it. Then Tommy Wiseau's The Room. This is everything I love about the B-movie. This is the film that will entertain you and keep you smiling and laughing uh, just for the wrong reasons. And then finally, <laughs> Mad Max Fury Road. To me, it is the perfect perfect example of what a popcorn munching blockbuster can be i have to say that that is a very very uh good list scott i have to but i also have to say i'm actually shocked there was one movie that i would have swore my left nipple would be on your list and now i've lost my nipple i was sure terminator would be on there yeah, I was sure it would be too. And yet, <laughs> yet here we are. It it it's the, that's the thing. It's you know, like I'll give what was almost on my list was best in show. And someone might say look at that and say, "Well, a mockumentary that's on your best of like your favorites of all time, Spinal Taps in my top 10 all favorite all-time favorites." Yet why would I pick best in show? Because it sort of more to me sums up that genre than Spinal Tap does. So it's it, it's a trick. It's a very tricky list. No, I agree with you. I, I, like I said, I love your list. I think it is is perfect, and it definitely embodies you. But that's the big thing. Is here we're not necessarily picking our favorites. We are trying to get. Uh, 10 movies that sort of encapsulate us. So sometimes you have to bump something like something like a Die Hard is probably I like more than a lot of these movies, but I already had something similar to that. So that had to go because I had to get in these other genres. Yeah, absolutely. It is a tough one. That's what makes it a tough list. So my number one was uh, the, the first movie that I mentioned today was uh, Wizard of Oz because that was my attempt to get a musical and an older picture and sort of that fantasy into something that I have showed my kids and has been with me since I was a little kid. Uh, then the movie that I think I 
explained very well why it's so important to me. I, I talked about how personal it is, and that is Star Wars. And then from there, Back to the Future, do, 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 do. <laughs> to me, a perfect movie, one of the most important movies of my childhood. So once again, it had to be there. Then it was the movie that was not on my list, and then my family said, no, it must be on your list, because you talk about it all the time, and you've showed it to us already. So Raiders of the Lost Ark is on, because my son and my wife said yes. And even my daughter said, no, it has to be on there and then moved to something a little bit different Fargo it opened my eyes to character driven stories and how you can have sort of these quirky elements and this comedy thrown into this drama darkness with with lightness and so Fargo really opened my eyes to storytelling it is one of my favorite movies and then I don't know if it's my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie but I felt like it was the best to be on this list and that is Jackie Brown. And then from there, a movie that is also very personal and I can really connect to sort of the Andy character at least. And that is Toy Story 3. And that is my animated movie. And then my creature feature movie, my horror movie, a movie that I absolutely love. And really, uh, it's another one that showed me just all the different faucets you can get from horror. That is The Thing. And then from there, it's my darker movie. It's my unsettling character movie. And it is my Martin Scorsese movie as well. That's Taxi Driver. And then I ended it with Under the Skin because I felt like this list would not be authentic unless I put one kind of weird, arty type movie on there. I think, I think that's 20, or sorry, 19 uh, movies that I really hope people check out. It's, uh, and I also will have to say I would have not predicted Wizard of Oz being the one that we both have. No, I wouldn't have predicted that as well. Like, we were so close to almost having the thing in common. So close. It got bumped last night. I'm glad I put it on because I was almost going to leave it off because I was like, well, Scott will have it on. <laughs> we almost had a thingless podcast. That would have been a shame. Well, yeah, because we both wanted it there. But, yeah, no, in the end, I was like, you know what? Maybe he doesn't, and it has to be on my list then. Mm -hmm. So it works out. Perfect. Yeah, it all worked out. And uh, what also works out is if you guys let us know how this show's doing. So you can give us suggestions for future shows. You can talk to us about the movies we reviewed. I would love if you guys showed me movies that describe you. Tell me about your five or ten personal movies. Do all that. You can do it by email at themoviebreakdown at gmail.com. If you prefer... For the Twitter, you can do it at Movie Breakdown 1. And we also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash the movie breakdown. Go to all those places, interact with us. We will love it as well. You are listening to this somehow. You're probably listening to it on a podcast place. You might be listening to it on Stitcher, Castbox, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Amazon Music. What I ask is please subscribe to us as well. Please rate us. Give us a five-star review. I know I ask for that every week, but if you do it, it really does help us with the algorithm and us to expand. We want to be bigger. We want to be better. If you like this show, that's the best thing you can do. And this is going to be the year that we just we just blow up. We get even bigger. Another thing that I would really love to blow up is my website. So please check it out. It is Beyond the Balcony. You can get there at beyondbalcony.com. Uh, this week I wrote a tribute to Charles Grodin as well. I, I, I talked about... 
how there was we know how there's a lot of movies that we get annoyed that they are so clearly trying to launch a franchise and that they're just a feature length commercial but i realized there's some movies that launch franchises that did it perfectly i list five movies this week five movies that did a masterful job of how you launch launch a franchise yes star wars is one of them and you can uh check out my list of the five movies i put with my descriptions and as well i just wrote a little piece about things i am grateful for during this pandemic we've had some hard times so i talk about things that have been hard but what is the grateful thing that i was able to get out of it as well by the time you're listening to this there will be a review for the 1982 fantasy epic and the sorcerer uh, there we go that's sword and sandal that's i mean we both I, I mentioned to you that i couldn't remember anything about sword and the sorcerer but uh sword and sandal movies or just wizard movies with wizards and any kind of fantasy once again set in a different time therefore makes it feel like it could be legitimate uh all that stuff is is super 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 fun. If you had to say like is Sword and Sorcerer, would you say it beats out like Clash of the Titans or Conan or? I will say with great confidence it beats out neither of those movies. Not even close. But uh, I think there is some charm and it has one of the more memorable beginnings. But I think they used up their special effects budget at that beginning. <laughs> I love it when a movie like that happens, like when we watched Piranha, <laughs> and there's this thing that is introduced that never even goes anywhere, and we realize, yeah, there's their budget. <laughs> we just watched their budget. Well, here's what I love. Just a little, a little sneak preview of my uh, review. This is what I love. It's called Sword of the Sorcerer. There's a sword that has three blades on it, and it shoots out like a harpoon. So really cool sword. You've got this sorcerer that just has like this wax-like melted face. He's this freaky creature thing who has a crazy awesome introduction. That's what the movie's called. So you think it's about those two things. Both those things, bookend the movie, don't appear at all in the middle. <laughs> oh, that's a bit of a... It's the title of two things that you see beginning and end. That's a bit of a letdown, I have to say. Uh, well, it's what, a bold way to go. <laughs> well, what, uh, we've got some exciting stuff next week. If you like this week, you need to join us next week. We've got some movie reviews for you. Uh, we have the thriller starring Amy Adams, The Woman in the Window, as well as the Zack Snyder zombie heist picture, Army of the Dead, which, I mean, if you're going to ask me, did Zack Snyder make a good movie? Yes, Dawn of the Dead. So Zack Snyder is back with zombies. I'm excited about that. Plus, on top of all that, we're going to be paying tribute to Charles Grodin. Yeah, so it's going to be a great show. Uh, I, I think this is a perfect thing to end. There's an article on Zack Snyder this week on The Hollywood Reporter, and it talked about things that uh, Zack Snyder does really well. And I was very curious. One of the things they mentioned was action movies with strong female characters. Oh. I guess that's... I was like, is that a typo? Is that a thing? Is that... Is that... Huh. Well, I mean, news to me, but might be, uh, maybe, I suppose. It was in an article on Hollywood Reporter, so it's got to be true. Yeah. 
Oh, well, join us next week and we'll talk out, just talk out, we'll talk about it, just how true that is. So, yes, uh, we look forward to it. I'm Scott Merton. Thank you so much for listening to us. And yes, we will see you next week. I'm Christopher Spicer. Goodbye, everyone. Take care. Bye, boys and girls. Do all those things. (laughs) Bye. Bye.